On this week's episode, we go back and look at an early 80s science fiction film that only made it to the big screen because an insurance company stepped in and saved the production. Oh, and uh, guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. I'm Troy Sauer. Brad Anderson. Jose Tineza. And this is Not a Bomb. Everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Not a Bomb. Just a reminder, this is the podcast where we go back and we talk about movies that bombed in the movie theater. Brad, we had an awesome episode last week with our good friend Sammy, and we had to follow that up with an even more awesome, awesomer guest. Is awesomer a word? Sure, why not? Okay. Well, I am super excited that we have our good, great, awesomest friend, Jose, back to talk about this week's movie. Jose, how you been, man? It's been a while. Good, good. I'm so happy to be guesting again. I love talking about movies, so it's, uh, I love it. I love it. It's my main thrill in life. We <laughs> thought this would be a perfect one for you because the movie we're talking about tonight was something that a listener sent in and it had been on our list. And when he sent an email and really went into depth and described it, we kind of said, uh, and, and Brad specifically was the one who, who said, I'm going to bump the movie I picked for this week, and we're moving this sucker all the way up. So, Brad, what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about 1983 science fiction film Brainstorm. Um, it is directed by one Douglas Trimble, and starring Christopher Walken, and, and the last appearance of Natalie Wood. Yeah, and it, was this a first-time watch for you, Brad? Had you ever seen this before? I had not, never seen this before. Um it's funny when we get into Trimble, uh, I'll talk about, you know, some of the stuff he's done. So he's not completely foreign to me, but this, this one was, and uh, yeah. Okay. And what about you, Jose? So this um, it's interesting. Cause I had guessed it for showgirls and then dragons forever. Yep. And of course I'd seen showgirls a million times. And then I'd seen all of the fight scenes a million times from dragons forever, but I'd never really seen the full movie. Um, so I'm actually really excited to, to to guest on this episode and talk about Brainstorm because I think it's been a good 30, 32 years since I've actually revisited this. Um, it's always been on my list to revisit, uh, but this is the first time that I've seen it probably in about 30 years other than, you know, the 80s when it was on HBO every other hour, it seemed like. And uh, my brother and I were always watching it. So, so yeah, now Brad wasn't alive when this thing was playing in the movie theater. No, no, I was, uh, I was born in January of 83. Oh, so okay. I was so, all right. Eight months old. You were eight months old. <laughs> Jose did. So was your first time ever seeing this film? Was it on home video or did you actually get to see it in the theater? I don't think I went to see it in the theater. I definitely saw it on VHS and then, uh, uh, HBO cable. Yeah. Okay. Well, when, when we get to talk about the production, I had a chance to see this in the movie theater. And like you said, Jose, it was one of those HBO films that showed up quite a bit. So I've seen it a bunch of times growing up, but I had not watched this thing in years. I honestly, I can't remember the last time I saw it 
And, and if I did, it was probably in college or something. I mean, I have not seen this thing for a long, long time. But I do remember specifically seeing this in the theater, and it had a pretty significant impact in terms of a viewing experience. So I thought, I'm, I'm just really curious. I don't know about you guys. Like I, Everybody keeps talking about you know Netflix and streaming services and the death of the movie theater. I love going to the movies, and I, I don't think the movie theater experience is dead by any means. Um, and Jose, you and I live here in Baltimore. We have the benefit of going to places like the Parkway, AFI, the Senator, and you know we can go back in time to these grand movie houses that are just gorgeous and um, see new films. But my favorite thing is going sort of back. I mean, just recently the Senator was showing Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and to go to the Senator and, and see you know that film, it, it's quite an experience. But I have a question for you guys. Can can you think back? And I don't know if this is sort of in your formative years or anything of that nature. But can you remember any sort of movie-going experiences that just totally blew you away? And you know for a fact that it can't be replicated from a home viewing experience that it was it was the fact of going into the theater, maybe seeing an IMAX for the first time, or you know, just just something that blew you away, and it was simply because it was in a movie theater. So I'll start with you, Jose. Do you do you have any of those like stories that you would tell people and go, man, I remember when I saw this and Wow. So it would, for me, it would have to be um, 3D and 3D is still like my thing. And so I, I remember seeing all of them, basically all of the 3D <laughs> movies, but I saw Space Hunter, Adventures oh, yeah. in the Forbidden Zone, and then Jaws 3D. And I just, you know, I just remember that, you know, if you've seen Space Hunter, it's not, it's not very good. But if you, if you've seen it, like the beginning when this, you know, the spaceship is coming out of the screen or, or coming towards the the camera or whatever, I, yeah, my mind was blown, like watching that, you know? Um, so 3D's always kind of been my thing. I collect 3D Blu-ray. I know that the, there's hardly, I can't remember the last time we had a 3D release for movie theaters or even one that was filmed natively in 3d versus the, the dreaded conversion, which is, you know, that's its own story. But, um, and then the, I think the other thing too is IMAX and just seeing things like our directors, like Christopher Nolan, um, shooting specific scenes in IMAX. So like the dark Knight, you know, even, even on Blu-ray and even seeing it in the, in the theater when it like, expands to like IMAX, even at home, it's, it's wonderful. I, I love that huge, I think it's four, is it four, three, something like that. It, yeah. The aspect, aspect ratio. I, I dig that. I like it. Yeah. I, I'll say this when IMAX is done correctly, Nolan's a great example. It is an incredibly immersive experience and it, and it's not even just the sound portion of it, but it can also, or the, the picture, but it's also the sound. I mean, those speakers will just, you know, they'll rumble you. Right. So Yep. Okay, Brad, what, what kind of experiences just can't be replicated or you can remember just kind of be blowing away from a theater going experience? Yeah, that it's easy for me. Um, I got my driver's license in 1999 and, uh, the movie <laughs> wow, we went I feel to so old when you say stuff for, like that, <laughs> for, uh, me too. <clears throat> my first kind of, I'm going to drive to the theater and take my friends. We went to the Kentucky theater, which is in downtown Lexington, Kentucky to see the Blair witch project. Um, and I remember that specifically just loving every second of it. We bought into all the marketing hook, line and sinker. Cause at that point in time, you really couldn't fact check a lot of this stuff. So 
it, it with me, like I wanted to believe that stuff because I wanted the movie to affect me even more. Like if you're going to go into a horror movie, um, I think it's more fun to kind of believe that it's real um, and, and kind of give yourself up to what they're trying to do, um, especially if they do it well. And Blair Witch Project was one of those things. I never, I will never forget that experience um, going with my friends and then going home. And like, we all just stayed at my buddy's house that night. Cause we're like, I'm not going home by myself. Like, no, <laughs> so uh, that one. And then I know it's kind of cliche and all, but, uh, I followed all the news on Avatar for it felt like ten years, and when I finally saw it in the theater, the way it was supposed to be seen, like it was mind blowing. And it, I think people kind of crap on that movie now and say, "Oh, it's not that great," but you know, it's Dances with Wolves, whatever. But it really did the 3D well because it not only had stuff in the foreground, but the background, you know, things just popped and, and it was just so organic and the way it all came together, you know, I, I still think that movie has merit. Uh, but I, I remember walking out of the theater and saying that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Now I've, I wouldn't say it's the best movie I've ever seen, but it was definitely one of the coolest movie experiences I've had. So those are the two that kind of came to mind. First, did, right off the bat. Did you go back and see Avatar multiple times in the theater or just the one? I saw it twice. Um, I saw it once in the 3D and then I went ahead and was just like, well, let's kind of compare the other way. And then that's oh, kind of no. that's kind of when you start to kind of see the movie as it is. And you're like, OK, um, I looked behind the curtain and it wasn't as great as I remember. But I still think that movie's fun. Um, you get Sigourney Weaver. So whatever. But those are the two. And also one that it shouldn't really stand out but does is Charlie, our friend, just said, hey, you're going to come see this movie with me. It's called The Hurt Locker. And we went to this uh, kind of weird indie small theater in Louisville. And I just sat down and watched The Hurt Locker. Literally had no idea what I was seeing. And, of course, you, you walk out of that and you're like, that's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> so that was just one of those things where I walked into a theater, had no idea what I was seeing, and then walked out and was like, I, all right, I'm blown away. No pun intended, but, you know. Was it was it the Baxter Avenue Theater in Baxter Louisville? Avenue, yep. Yeah, that, yep. that's a great little uh, venue. Um, my, the, the, so just, yeah. just, to, just, just to piggyback on, on um, uh, his comments, um, I remember the Blair Witch because I missed about 15 minutes of it because I had to go outside and throw up on the sidewalk. Oh, um, because of the because motion the, sickness? It was the it was the shakiness of the cam. I, I had never experienced anything like that. And I was like, I hope to God it never happens again. And it did on Cloverfield. Oh, I think no. um, so Cloverfield had the same kind of like yes. shaky camera. And for whatever stupid reason, I TJ Miller yelled the whole time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and for whatever reasons, I put all of us because it was our friends um, in the center of a row. And I distinctly remember they're approaching that that fallen like building. And I stood up and I turned and I screamed, "I'm going to throw up!" Everybody, let me out! And I just <laughs> ran out the row, whatever. But yeah, and then the Avatar. I think we'll probably when we get back in, when we get into Trumbull. And sort of his visionary sort of stuff. I think we're going to return to Avatar and James Cameron in some ways, or at least I will. But no, okay. I, I think we will um, because there's there's a lot of similarities there, right? Uh, yep. when, when I was thinking about it, there's so many, and I, I got to kind of give my dad props because he was the one 
that got me hooked into theaters. But there, there were a couple of instances where I was just blown away. And, and it was specifically because of um, my dad taking me. The first one, and it's funny you bring up 3D, Jose. I was in school. I was going to uh, uh, St. Francis of Assisi in, in Wichita, Kansas, Catholic school. And 3D was making a big comeback. Was and, for the devil? Is that what the Catholic school told yeah, you? 3D for the, for the devil. Yeah. So 3D was making a comeback, and specifically it kicked off with a, a Western called Coming At Ya. So yeah. my dad wrote a note to the teachers and the nuns saying I had a doctor's appointment so he could take me out of class so we could go see Coming At Ya in 3D at the Fox Theater. And I'd never seen a 3D film before, and I remember, you know, going and it was like, don't tell your mom, we're going to, we're going to go see a movie. You don't have a doctor's appointment. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, and, and it was amazing. I mean, the, the, when it starts with the sequences of all these 3d sort of gimmicky shots where, you know, the cannonball is rolling to the edge and you got the snake coming down. I mean, I lost my mind, but that was my introduction to 3d and I've seen that film since. And it's just, you know, it's a, and it's an Italian spaghetti exploitation it's it's truly a 3D film, and it was made for the intent to kind of bring 3D back, and it kicked off this whole 3D craze. That's why you had that, you know, Parasite with Demi Moore and all those things coming out. So yeah. I'm with you. Like, your 3D experience, your first one, you're just like, oh, my God. And then I, I would love to talk about the time that I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey in 70 millimeter with mm. – um, I think Randy, our good friend was with us and we went to the AFI and the two lead yeah. actors were there and we got to hear them talk oh, about it. Here yeah. Dooley and wow. Yeah. And, uh, but there was a time we were vacationing. Uh, I think I, it was out in Colorado and there's a, and I can't remember the city. I don't know if it was Denver, Colorado Springs. I'd have to look this up, but there was a theater out there called the continental. It's one of the largest theaters in the world. And they were showing oh. a 70 millimeter print of Spartacus um, mm. And this was, you know, think of, and I know Jose, you've seen, um, because you've been here, the Senator Theater and Brad, I've shown you pictures of it, but think of that old 40s style movie theater, but think of the Senator times three in terms of size with a balcony. That's how big it wow. was. And you get the full curtains, you get to watch Spartacus, there's the intermission. I think it was the first time I went to a film that I remember saying, okay, I feel like I watched a movie, then there's an intermission and I get another movie because you got to go out, go to the bathroom and all that other stuff, but just sort of the splendor or the grandeur of going to the film, which is exemplified by that experience at the Continental. And um, that that's why I love going to the films because it's an event, right? And you get the right movie um, and Spartacus on, on a 70 millimeter, huge, like 40 foot story, you know, it, it, it is immersive, but it, it's a great movie too. But those are the two experiences I think of. And it, it's funny, you know, all of us are talking about 3D because, 3D, mm -hmm. when done correctly at a movie theater, it's a lot of fun, man. Yeah. I make an admission. Yeah. I think my bloody Valentine remake was one of the first 3D films I remember seeing. Oh, really? And that was. Well, that was a, that was a good what, 3D film, though. Was that probably, I like, love 20, that movie. Yeah. 2010, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's directed fun, by but. directed by Patrick Lussier, written by Todd Farmer. I'm huge fans of those two like i love those two to death i will see anything with both of their names or one of their names on it because <laughs> you know 3d died for i mean the 90s and the early 2000s and then it came back so like my prime film going life in the 90s and the 2000s it really wasn't a thing until you know it, it came back i guess around 2010 ish i guess and then 
everything was hot and heavy for five, six years and then it went away. So yeah, it's cyclical. I mean, I, I grew up in a place where coming at you kicked that phase off and you're talking late seventies, early eighties and you had jaws 3d Friday, 13th 3d. I mean, there, there was a whole slate Treasure of them. the four crowns yep. Amityville 3d. Yeah. All of yeah, those. I so, love them all. And, and, and <laughs> were those the ones where you wore the red and blue? Were those the red and blue ones? No, yes. not the red. Uh, Some, well, well uh, yeah. I mean, they were so they were a version of the anaglyph yes. in some ways. It, right. Um, but then they moved to like polarized, which was a much better type of 3d. Yep. And then Cameron sort of, change that with his invention for avatar yeah because so, the, yeah. the fir- i remember specifically and i think i have a box of all my 3d glasses um when i was young i collected them all but they were a polarized lens so it looked like a gray lens and, and you were wearing those in the beginning but um even at that time period local tv stations you could go down to the quick trip or 7-eleven or whatever and they would show creature of the black lagoon on tv where you get your red and blue you know glasses and yeah. watch those so um, yeah. And, and I, I, it, it was a great experience, but you know, I got to say, I, I think 3d will come back at some point. I mean, it has to it, theaters are always looking for that next gimmick. Um, but I, I remember going in the early eighties and I can't even remember what the film was, but, um, it was a schlocky eighties film and they were whole, you know, handing out barf bags. Um, because yeah. you know that, and, and we could, we could do a whole episode of William castle and all his stuff that he did. Right. Yes. But, um, you know, that, and yeah, that's what makes the, the, I don't know, the movie going experience fun is just sometimes all the gimmicks that kind of go with it. And, you know, you just get that sort of group experience. So that leads us to this yeah. week because this, this movie that we're talking about this week was designed specifically to kick off, um, a very particular type of, um, film going experience show scan. And we'll talk about that in detail in the production, but as always, I mean, we talk about the numbers first, right, Brad? And, and we talk about Brainstorm and when it was released and how did it do? Um, so obviously it, it shows up on a podcast called Not a Bomb. So it, it bombed <laughs> theatrically, right? Yes, it did. Um, so we're looking at an $18 million budget, um, comes in at $10.2 million. So it loses about $8 million just on production. Um, opening weekend it grosses $1.2 million, which is good for seventh place. Listen to these bangers that it lost out to though. We got the big chill at number one that weekend. Yeah. Mr. Mom. It's a good one. Beyond the limits. Yeah. Troy, your film risky business. Heck yeah. Tom yeah. Cruise. All right. And number five is all of our probably favorite movie. Revenge of the Ninja. Yes, Shokasugi. Yes. Heck yeah, yes. man. Yes. And then number six was The the Lonely Lady, which is a universal picture. Pia Zadora? Um, yes. <laughs> I, I'm going to say yes, because Jose is a walking encyclopedia of all film huh. facts. So, What was it just... called? The Lonely Lady? Yes, with uh, Howard Robbins. He's also in that. Right? Okay. Right? Right? Look me up. Look me up. It is Pia Zadora. Yeah, okay. I, I wasn't going to doubt you, man. <laughs> I wasn't going to doubt you one bit. <laughs> I can't believe Revenge of the Ninja was not number one because as much money as I know I gave that film, it should have been number one. Exactly. Um, so I, I meant to say Brainstorm is released uh, September 30th of 1983. Um, like I said, the year of my birth. 
Um, <laughs> other films released in September of 1983. Uh, Deathstroke. Didn't bring that one up in the uh, top grossing films. Um, the Big Chill, obviously. Cross Creek. Um, Troy, I know you like this movie. Eddie and the Cruisers. Oh, my God. Yes. Love Eddie and, and the Cruisers. That's it. Five films in September of 1983 were released. Wow. Was Cross Creek a, like a Porky's thing on like a... No, it I, is I think a, you're thinking Up the Creek. Up, up the Creek. creek. Oops. Yes. <laughs> so uh, much rip, for knowing everything. Yeah, that, I think that was Torn, an HBO film. Isn't Rip Torn in uh, Cross Creek? I think... Uh, I don't and, know. Uh, My Mary yes. Stein, Stein, whatever her last Mary name is. Mary Steenburgen. Steenburgen, yeah, yeah, there we yeah. go. Mary, the bartender from Cheers. Oh, God, what's his name? Ted Danson, sorry. Yes. Yep. Um, <laughs> so critically, we're looking at 55% from the critics and 56% by the audience. So right mm. in line. Um, usually on these kind of high-concept science fiction films, there's a huge disparity disparity uh, because usually critics either like it or hate it, and then the audience is like the exact opposite. But this one, they're right in line. Um, our boy Ebert, not really a big fan of this movie. Uh, didn't think the characters were developed enough. He's always like character development guy. Like above all, he wants to feel like the characters are developed so he can feel something for him. But this one, he didn't like too much. Um, Wasn't his yeah. review like five paragraphs, like four paragraphs? Um, it was super short. Yeah. yeah, it was super short and just like. I don't know. Like maybe he had a deadline and just threw it off. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> he, you know, sometimes he's, he's hit or miss a lot of times. Uh, but yeah, he, the reason why I like films critically is because of Roger Ebert. So I know we rag on him a lot, but he, you know, he's important to all of us. Um, anyway, that, that's all I got for you, Troy. So th- this is an interesting one because we're going, <laughs> which is, you know what? Like, half the reason why we picked it. Well, not half. I'd say like 75% of the reason why we're doing this movie is the discussion about the production of the movie. Yes, but I'm with Jose. It's always been something that I've wanted to revisit because when we talk about sort of our thoughts or impressions about the film, I, I remember seeing this in the movie theater and I remember it being sort of a big deal in terms of how my dad described it to me. Um, because of what happened behind the production now, you know, granted I'm like 11 years old, but it was more because of the experience because my dad was very much in tune to, Hey, this is what they're trying to do with like the format. And so if we go see the film here, it's supposed to be sort of a, a special viewing, but before we get to the production and sort of the history about it, cause it is super interesting. Um, I do want to talk about the people behind the camera in front of the camera and let's start with Douglas Trumbull. So, Brad, you were saying that this name, and specifically this director, you're very familiar with. How how are you familiar with him? Well, he did the effects for 2001, mm-hmm. um, also for Close Encounters, and my favorite film, one of my favorite films, Blade Runner, which he left early on Blade Runner to do pre-production on Brainstorm. So right. he actually was only contracted to work on half of the film. So, um, you know, he wanted to work with Scott on that film. And, you know, I read in an interview, he said, thank God it wasn't in space. Cause I wasn't going to do a space movie, even though they allude to off world and things like that, but you know, it wasn't space. Um, and then he also directs one of my kind of favorite sort of, um, science fiction films, silent running. So I love silent running. 
Um, which is funny when we got that email from um, Philip, I had just re-upped and got the arrow edition of silent running like that morning. So I was like, Oh, this is really weird. So um, but yeah, that's what I know him from. Yeah, you're right. So 2001 Space Odyssey, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Blade Runner, he all had done special <laughs> photographic effects for. And what's interesting is all those films, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Now, he didn't win. He just was nominated. He did end up winning an Academy Award in 1993, but it was an Academy Award for Scientific and Engineering Award. So if, you, if you're watching the Oscars and they go, hey, we had a dinner last night and we brought the nerds over and here's 10 minutes of nerd footage. Um, Douglas was part of the nerd footage and, and got his Academy Award for basically innovation within you know the motion picture industry, which if you go back and look at his resume and you look at all of the things that he did from a technical aspect, I mean, the guy is pretty much a genius when it comes to kind of pushing forward um, the theatrical format and all the things that he was involved in. Um, Jose, is, is this a director you're familiar with from his work or just stories about him? Or I, I have to assume so. I mean, given as much as you know about film, this would be a, a guy that you would seek out, I, I assume, and kind of go, oh, yeah, when, I do want to go through his filmography. So Trumbull to me is one of the special effects like legends. So as somebody who who grew up reading cover to cover every single month, Starlog and Fangoria, like I used to be able to like rattle off all of the big visual effects people, you know, so there was Doug Trumbull, Phil Tippett, you know, um, all those people. And he was, that's how I knew him was from the special effects, especially 2001 Star Trek. And then of course, Blade Runner, which, you know, I was just sort of mesmerized by because, you know, science fiction, I'd only really known like Star Trek and Star Wars and Blade Runner was just so dark and, and just, Lee, I guess. And that was just, I don't know, maybe I just tuned in at that time. Maybe it was a dark child, like, uh, and wet. you know, the Beetlejuice <laughs> girl or whatever. Very wet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It is. Well, and, and the other, but, I was going to say, and the other interesting fact is, um, after brainstorm, I mean, he didn't make another theatrical film, but he started to specialize in short films and specifically rides. Right. So he's yeah. probably most famous in, in that type of filmmaking for back to the future, the ride in 1991. So, um, yep. I, did, did anybody ever go on that ride? I did. How was it? Wow. I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, I didn't go back to the future and I didn't go to see Biff's world or anything like that. Oh, okay. No, did, it did wasn't you ever, like the movie. I didn't go to the wild, wild west. Did, did you ever, uh, experience that like in, in the theme park, Jose or. No, 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 no. No, oh, I'd okay. only seen, um, sort of pictures of it. Um, but I know that, um, yeah, Trumbull, so just to sort of Trumbull, Trumbull was like the James Cameron of his time, right? So James Cameron also started in effects. Um, I think he even did some like model work, map painting for Escape from New York. Don't quote me on that. Um, but I think he was with, it might be frame store. He was with, or maybe it's, I'm sorry, it's not frame store, it's digital digital domain. I think he was part of digital domain and he helped out with some of those special effects. And then he branched off into writing and directing. Um, but in the same way, you know, Doug Trumbull started with visual effects um, and then branched off into directing. I think uh, silent running was, was, was his first movie. Right. Um, and then of course, brainstorm and this, unfortunately famously drove him out of the directing business. And, um, 
And, you know, if you if you also read a lot of his interviews too, his experience with Stanley Kubrick in some ways um, almost made him stop doing uh, studio work altogether. He called Kubrick kind of a, a, a taskmaster and they did not get along sometimes, but the, the film was absolutely brilliant. Um, and then more Isn't to that your what point. what everyone says about a Stanley Kubrick besides Tom Cruise. I think everyone yes. hates Stanley Kubrick <laughs> except Tom Cruise. Yeah. But then look at the work. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, uh, but Trumbull is, you know, more to your point, Troy, he is pushing the format. Um, at one point, I think his, either his company was absorbed by IMAX or something, but he was, he was part of bringing IMAX to, to the foreground. Um, I think he even was the vice chairman of the board or, or something corporate wise with IMAX for a short amount of time. Um, but then you did bring up show scan, um, which, you know, it's an interesting concept because we're, we're talking about seventies, eighties, and he's already discussing high frame rate, um, film, right. Oh yeah. How, you know, 24 frames per second is usually what the camera does, but more than that, twice than that, um, you know, gives you this sort of reality like, I mean, movies always want it to be sort of like, you know, you're there, you're experiencing, it's a visual medium. And he, he had that idea to just, you know, let's do it at 60 frames per second, 48 frames per second, you know, they and call that the soap opera effect when you see it. Cause aren't soap operas shot in 60 frames. So people like, Oh, this just looks like a weird soap opera. Yes. Um, so it, you know, it's weird. Like you'll hear Trumbull talk about uh, Peter Jackson's experiment with the Hobbit being released in a high frame rate HFR, which, you know, he had explained to everybody when it came, what is HFR? What's a high frame rate? Who cares? But I remember, I remember when I saw the, the Hobbit, it took me a while to get used to it because it literally was so sharp, so clear, so real. I felt like I could see the glue from like the appliances. Like yep. it, it almost made me like, I had to adjust to it. It took me a while to adjust to it. Um, and then of course, Gemini man, which um, uh, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty much what Trumbull was trying to do, but Gemini man itself was supposed to have been 4k. Like I think, um, 60 frames per second, oh, 120, 120 frames per second at 4K, but only did 2K at 60 uh, 60 HFR, and only two theaters showed that like the way it was intended. And the same thing happened with with Ong's other movie, um, Billy Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but it's interesting to watch that because it is a hyper reality. Um, I mean, I could. I could see the discoloration on Will Smith's face. Like it was, it was an interesting way to watch a movie and the action scene kind of freaked me out because like you, it was like you were actually ducking for bodies flying at you or whatever, but for Trumbull to be that pioneer, I mean, it's, it's, it's mind blowing and he's still alive and he's still doing that. We're talking 30 years before that stuff. Yeah. It it is crazy. crazy. And I, I remember the Hobbit. You're absolutely right. The thing, it took me a bit to, to adjust, but I remember clear as day. You and I saw that together. We did. Yeah. In in Louisville, um, it was flames or fire that really, I was fascinated with. So anytime they had fire or something and you're looking at that, it was like, oh my God, I'm looking at a big window and I'm looking at a ball of flame. It it was crazy. And with Gemini man, 
I'm with you. I, I, I felt like I was ducking through these action sequences. Um, yeah, it's water, incredible. Water just blew my mind. Anytime you would see these shots of water and they're on the boat or, you know, it, I was amazed because it felt like I could just touch it. So, yeah. yeah I wonder what those drives look like when they were sending out the drives to Gemini Man to the two theaters that actually got to do it in 4K <laughs> 120. I mean, God, it's got to be a huge file. Well, I don't think yeah. it was two theaters because White Marsh actually had the 4K 120 um, frames per second. It was, I think, it was more than two theaters. Um, Didn't they? Yeah, there, there were. I, th- I thought it was LA. There was one in LA and one in New, one York, New York, and that was that I was it. I, I think there I was were making more. a play to. Yeah, I was making a play to drive up to New York to see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I could be wrong. I just, I just remember being in in White Marsh, uh, Maryland, and seeing it at the AMC there, and it blew me away. But I thought. That was one of the theaters that was showing it in, in like the it, the way it was supposed to be, but could be wrong. Um, but yeah, yeah d- one more note. One more note on yeah. on Doug is his father was Donald Trimble, who he did effects for Wizard of Oz, which so yes. in the family. Yeah, so it's it, kind yeah. of amazing. He's um, I well, mean, he, he definitely overachieved. We'll say that. Yeah, <laughs> he's uh, he's producer on the film as well. Um, and then from a writing standpoint, we have. Bruce Joel Rubin, who's accredited for the story. Now you'll know him because he was an Academy Award winner in 1991 for best writing screenplay for the movie Ghost. Um, he's yes. also done Deadly Friend in 1986, the Wes Craven film, and Jacob's Ladder in 1990. So he is, you know, and a guilty pleasure of mine, Deep Impact. Deep Impact. Yep, love it. <laughs> um, now he does the story. The screenplay is done by Robert Stitzel and Philip Frank Messina. Not a lot of writing credits to them. Um, the cinematography, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and I'm going to butcher this last name. I can't um, wait. Here we go. Do it. Do it. <laughs> you want to do it, Jose? Do you know this? Can you, can you? No, I want you to do it because I do know it. <laughs> oh, Richard Urisic? No, close. Well, no, not okay. really. But, not close. Um, go ahead. Thanks for, thanks for Richard, helping me go. Richard Urisic. Urisic? So he's, okay. he's Croatian. All right. Well, this is his only cinematographer credit, but he has, um, you know, special effects credits, but he's really known for his work on Blade Runner. So obviously that keeps coming up. Star Trek and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So him... And Douglas have worked, you know, very close on some big films. Um, Actually, he jokingly calls, he jokingly says he's class of 2001 um, yes. because that's how he sort of like learned all of that. And by the way, Yurisich, this is his only DP credit, but I know him from his special effects work and especially Event Horizon, which is, oh, he was yes. the visual that's effects right. supervisor for Event Horizon and Mission Impossible. Episode 19. <clears throat> yes, <laughs> I, I I will go to my grave defending Event Horizon. I love that movie. Just Troy doesn't like look, it enough. He doesn't like real. What? He doesn't <laughs> like it enough. <laughs> really? You're gonna throw me under the bus? Okay, that's fine. Hey, I'll defend yeah. my opinion. Go ahead. Go ahead. Actually, go ahead. and one last thing, I just want to piggyback on. Um, I am obsessed with Bruce Joel Rubin. He is probably one of my favorite screenwriters. Um, So, yes, he is known for ghosts. He even wrote the book for the musical. There was a ghost musical, everybody. Oh, wow. And apparently, apparently it was. It it was what? Um, It was terrible? (laughs) Apparently it was terrible. So, um, you know how there's obviously a ghost because it's called ghosts. Um, They projected like holograms of the actors like singing and stuff. And 
I mean, you go to theater for live theater. Why would you want to watch a projection of an actor singing? And so there, there was a lot of that. And it just, you know, it wasn't as good as the movie. But so Bruce Joel Rubin, he writes about these sort of metaphysical and like life after death and these really, really big questions. And um, like I said, I've been a fan of his. He traveled through like Nepal and India and he is a big proponent of a type of meditation. So he he is deep in it, I am telling you. And um, so I remember there was an article and then subsequently in Cinefantastique, which was a magazine that I also read with Cinefix, which is a special effects magazine. Mm-hmm. But there was a, there was a, a person, Stephen Rebello, I think his name was, and he said, here are these great unproduced screenplays, right? And one of them was Jacob's Ladder. And then Cinefantastique did this whole thing calling it unfilmable. Now this is his first draft, but I remember reading these storyboards of like demons coming out of the wall and like, you know, like Jacob, like fighting with these demons that had wings and tails. And I was just like, I cannot wait to see this movie. And then it came out and Adrian Lyon, you know, did his best or whatever. It was certainly nothing like that, that draft that I saw. Um, But speaking of, you know, life after death, obviously we're going to get into that with brainstorm but he also directed and wrote this movie called my life i don't know if any of you have ever seen that michael keaton, michael keaton yeah. and um nicole kidman right um it is a downer it's a huge downer but basically oh, yeah. um michael keaton's dying of cancer and he decides to film um his life and film like giving advice to his unborn child or Does whatever queen and Latifah it, in it and i she might be is she in the it. nurse Possibly, wow. actually, I, I you could, might be right. Yeah, you might be it because I I haven't seen that film and I don't know how long. I think I saw. Oh, it. but that that movie destroys me. Yeah, and he is you he's just a time. wonderful screenwriter. He's amazing. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I'll tell you what. When you talk about behind the camera and you look at the people that came together for this project, the pedigree is just freaking amazing, especially for a science yeah. fiction film. And we even we haven't even got to James Horner yet, who does the music which yes. I, I feel like he's one of the best composers out there. I mean, he's, he's up there in my opinion with John Williams, et cetera, but you know, it, it strikes me as odd when you go back and look at um, his, you know, I guess filmography, the only thing he really got, I guess, notoriety for from the Academy was um, Titanic when he won Academy Award for best original dramatic score. And then he won a second Academy Award for Titanic for, you know, one of the songs that won the Academy Award as well. I think it's my heart will go on. Was that the one? Oh yes. yeah, Celine Dion. Yes. Yeah. So he, he he goes home with two Academy Awards, but if just go back and look at his filmography, and it's a shame that he didn't win more. But yeah, the the craftsmanship. I believe he died tragically. I think he's no longer with us. Um, is I, he I, I the composer? Oh my! Really? I don't know. I I think so. I don't. Maybe know. while but while we're looking that up, the thing I like about James Horner is that. Um, Oh, it's saying James Horner death. Ugh. Oh yeah, um, I think you're right. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, 2015, Jesus. age 61. How do I not know that? Um, so the thing that I the thing that I like about James Horner is that um, to me, there's two different types of music composers. There's like, well, no, there's more than that. But um, <laughs> you know, I think about sometimes like ambient or like tonal sounds. So maybe like if you're thinking about the soundtrack of like the Blair Witch Project or like Hannibal, Brian Reitzel's amazing work for the Hannibal television show. But then, you know, there's other, you know, and then of course there's your John Williams and your, there's your Hans Zimmer. 
Horner occupies that sort of sweet spot where it's both, right? So he can have these ambient, tonal, like very quiet sort of things. And then they just come to life. And then of course there's like these, the, you know, the, the score from like aliens, you know, dun, 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 you know, the military beat and all of that stuff. But in this movie, I mean, it, it, his music is just magical, like a, like a, like a classical symphony. And it's just, it's both uplifting and like awe-inspiring. It's perfect actually for this movie. Yeah. And some I'll, of the sequences. I'll say this, there are things that happen on screen and I get excited for what's going on on screen, but it's not the events on screen, it's the music. <laughs> so yeah, uh, well, it, his music has a way <laughs> of just, when, yeah, when it kicks in, it, it really, I don't know, amplifies sort of the tension and the excitement that's supposed to happen. But I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, now that that's behind the camera and you're like, holy cow, all those, well, yeah, let's talk about who's in front of the camera for a second. 1983, you, you've got Christopher Walken as Michael Brace. So he, going into this film, had ju- you know already won an Academy Award for a supporting role in The Deer Hunter. He went on to also um, get a nominee for Catch Me If You Can in 2003. But leading up to this film, he was in Heaven's Gate in 1980, uh, Dogs of War in 1981, Pennies from Heaven in 81, which he's fantastic in. I, I love that film. Yeah. Um, and in 83, a brainstorm. He Wait, what's the sequel of from Showgirls called? Showgirls. Pennies from Heaven. heaven. Yeah, Pennies from heaven. yeah. Penny <laughs> apostrophe S yeah. is from Heaven. Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> just got to slide that in there, huh? Did it. I did <laughs> All right, it. Good. Um, so he does Pennies from Heaven in 81. In 83, he has two films come out. It's this one we're talking about today. And then The Dead Zone in 83. Um, follows that up with, you know, a James Bond film plays the heavy in A View to a Kill. But I mean... I don't know if you guys have like favorite Christopher Walken films. I mean, I, I love pennies from heaven. I, I think he's a scene stealer, even though he's not in it as much as like Steve Martin and obviously Steve Martin's great, but I think of at close range in 86. I love him in that. Um, King of New York in 1990 yeah. is probably yeah, my, my favorite performance of his, but you can't Campbell take, Ferrar. yeah, 92, 92. Well, you can't take away true romance in 93. Um, Pulp Fiction in 94, The Rundown in 2003, yeah. I think is fantastic. And Balls of Fury in 2007 are my favorites. Now, Brad, what which one am I skipping? Batman Returns. He's Max Shrek. Oh my God, yes. He's good. I, I, I love him in that, but if I'm, if I, He's so good. if you're like, hey, let's watch a Christopher Walken film, it's, well, how does The Rundown sound? Balls of Fury, King of New York. Th- those are my go-to. What, what other ones do you guys like him in? Uh, there's a small movie called Pulp Fiction that he's in. Yeah, he's 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 pretty good in that one. I love uh, Seven Psychopaths is really good as well. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I don't know if I've seen this movie in a long, long time, but The Prophecy. Uh, oh yes, you know I. Yeah, you know, Catholic boy over there. I'm sure you watched The Prophecy a few times. Oh heck yeah, yeah. You you got a favorite Jose that you gravitate to? Is it King of New York or is there another one out there? King of New York and Deer Hunter. Um, you know, Christopher Walken is, he's one of those actors that will scare me sometimes with his intensity. I can't even really think of anybody else that sort of scares me with that, with that sort of intensity. Actually, you know who else does? Uh, Ben Foster. I know he looks like all like (laughs) nebbishy or, or or geeky or whatever, but some of his roles, I'm like, where is this coming from? I'm scared of you. Um, but Walken is the same way. Like, 
Yes, exactly. Um, but, you know, Walken is the same way. Like, you know, one time, you know, he's composed and then he's like bug eyed and he's like crazy. He's unusually restrained in this until like, I mean, obviously until towards the end, some of the Walken comes out. Um, but I will say this. I do love the video that he did for Fatboy Slim. Oh, yeah. Where he's dancing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was I, I think I've watched that like a million times and he just there's such joy in him doing it and watching him do it that I'm just like, this is great. He, he also occupies one of those Spike Jones. Odds. This is Spike Jones video. Yeah. Um, he also occupies this sort of weird strata of, of actors now that are self-referential and they're almost parodying themselves now. Um, again, the only other person I can think of is uh, the Dawson's Creek guy. He, he went into that sort of weird strata. He was on a television show where he played himself and was making fun of himself or whatever. But um, Walken's definitely up there the same way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, his Saturday Night Live performances, I think, are interesting because they go from extremely funny to extremely painful because he's obviously reading off cue cards. I mean, more so than anybody else. But, um, you know, the whole champagne. <laughs> <laughs> I love all those things that he does, the cowbell, everything else. But um, so we, we've got that. We got Academy Award winner Christopher Walken. And then we have Academy Award winner um, Natalie Wood. So this is her last film. And we're going to talk about that and sort of the the mystery, the controversy and the tragedy around her death. But she plays Karen Brace. Um, nominated for three Academy Awards, Rebel Without a Cause, Splendor in the Grass, Love with the Proper Stranger. Uh, I think she won and I can't remember if it's love for the love with the proper stranger, but out of those three, she, she did take, um, the statue home. I, I thought it was splendor in the grass. Mm. Was it splendor in the grass? Yeah. I, she's I, high caliber actress. I oh, specifically yeah. remember her from West side story and the searchers. Those are the two films that if, if in rebel without a cause is fantastic, but man, Natalie Wood was a fantastic, just a fantastic, fantastic actress. <laughs> Um, and at this time for Brainstorm, this was supposed to be her comeback film. So, you know, in the 70s, uh, she had sort of taken some time off to, you know, devote herself to the family. And in coming back to Hollywood, and, you know, she's kind of Hollywood royalty at this time period, uh, Brainstorm was was supposed to be that studio vehicle that was going to, you know, bring more roles and opportunity for her. Um, but we'll talk about kind of what happened there. And then we also get. Did you see the part where she kind of had to go on like a two or three week like crash diet because she was like twenty five pounds overweight? And yeah. They're like, nah, son. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. You got yeah. Hollywood, even in eighty three, there. Yeah. Bunch of scumbags. I I do remember her death really sort of overshadowing this movie at the time of its release. You know, like anytime my brother and I mentioned, oh, we were watching Brainstorm, like my parents would be like. Oh, that's the one where Natalie Wood died. Um, so it, it was, you know, and Trumbull says the same thing too. Like it was obviously a huge impact. I'm sure we'll get into that too, but yeah, she's the, um, Oh, and she's it, actually the daughter. She's the daughter of Russian immigrants. So yep. looking at her, you'd never think that. Right. And then of course they cast her in West side story. Um, she's not Hispanic, uh, <laughs> You know, but she's, yeah, she's gorgeous. She's a great actress. It's yeah. it's also funny that, like, she was married to Robert Wagner. They get divorced, and then they get remarried later. So, like, she comes back to him, and, yeah, yeah. It's just that's just a weird, I don't know. 
Yeah, and, and full disclosure, working working out the second time. But maybe I could be wrong. Yeah, she had she had three Oscar nominations. She didn't win in either of those. So Rebel Without a Cause, oh. Splendor in the Grass, and Love with the Proper Stranger nominations only. Uh, okay. Which is is crazy to me because I mean she's fantastic. Uh, to now, there's two other people we'll kind of round out the the cast with. Louise Fletcher as Lillian Reynolds. Everybody will know her from One Flew Over's The Cuckoo's Nest, which she won an Academy Award for Best Actress in Leading Role. She follows her Academy Award win with quite possibly the worst sequel in all of history, Exorcist II, uh, The Heretic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't remember. So One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Exorcist II, I – I remember her from a little film called Strange Invaders in 1983. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's such a great, I don't know, throwback to 50 science fiction. I love that movie. And then last, we've got Cliff Robertson as Alex Turson. Again, uh, won an Oscar for Best Actor in a leading role for 1968's Charlie. This guy has so many uh, film and TV credits. I mean, 116 of them. Most people today would probably know him as Ben Parker from the Spider-Man films, but you you got to understand back at this time period, and especially uh, he's the Kobe, the Tobey Maguire, Uncle the Tobey Maguire. Right? Yep, correct. Yep. yep. But Cliff Robertson was all over television and film, kind of leading up into the '80s. But you know, certainly a prominent actor and, and had a lot of TV roles, especially you know in the '60s. But um, man, I you've got this amazing talent behind screen. Uh, behind the camera and in front of the camera, you have all of these Academy Award winners and you know people who are nominated. It is crazy. What could go wrong? They got together. So um, let's talk oh, about wait, the production. One more, yep. two, two more things about the production, people. Yes. Um, I just wanted to point out Edward Warshilka, um, Hungarian. Uh, he's the <laughs> you crushed ed, he's that last the, name. You crushed it. I did it. I did it. Actually, I think it's pronounced Varshika, but. Anyway, you need um, to give me lessons on how to say last names. So. <laughs> we're too dumb to realize what you were wrong or right. So this is interesting. Warshuka is he's been on uh, on the he's been an editor or on the editorial department for some pretty big movies. Rambo three, Howard the Duck, 16 Candles, the main event, Child's Play one and two. He also has the distinction of um, editing a movie called Child's Play by Sidney Lumet. Um, and what's even further interesting is his son, Edward A. Varshilka, followed in his footsteps. He has been John Carpenter's mainstay editor from Big Trouble in Little China all the way up to Escape from L.A., Village of the Damned, In the Mouth of Madness, um, Vampires. He also edited The Running Man, and he finished what started with his father by editing Child's Play 3. And then the other thing I want to point out is John Valone was the production designer. Uh Um, So I know a lot of this took place in, in Durham. And of course you've got the, what's it called? Hell's angels, Hill, five angel, whatever the Wright brothers, the Wright brothers, yeah, the Wright brothers, Hill, the monument, uh, Duke university, the research triangle, but Valone obviously put together what looks like, messy scientific labs and all of the machinery and it just looks fabulous he works with walter hill a lot so production designer for streets of fire um southern comfort 48 hours worked with rennie harlan and cliffhanger die hard 2 and ford fairlane and then a bunch of arnie movies predator commando and red heat um valone is pretty awesome so more to your Holy point there cow. are some amazing yeah. people behind the camera <laughs> you just listed like so many films that i that i've loved and and what's cool is we've talked about some of them like streets of fire which brad 
you are you have you come around on that one yet? No, I saw um, it was on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Streets of Fire. It's great. I'm I'm determined to four write, people have watched that. <laughs> I'm determined to write a Streets of Fire musical, and it's going to go to Broadway, and it's going to be a huge hit. I will be there. <laughs> I will be there front row. I'm surprised um, nobody's done it. It's 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 right for a musical. Well, anyway. they, we did they did that sequel that kind of never got out there. So uh, yeah, um, let's. <laughs> so before we talk about the tragedy, I do want to talk about the production a little bit. Um, so we've hinted at this. So the film was conceived as an introduction to a new technology Trumbull was trying to pitch, and it was the 60 frames per second, 70 millimeter film process called ShowScan. Um, so here's, I'm going to read something because I find this super interesting. You talked about this, Jose, where they were experimenting with all these different formats. This is how deep it went. So this is a quote from, uh, Trumbull says, the reason I chose 60 was because that's the same frame rate that television has been forever because television is very narcotically stimulating. We did this test in a laboratory at the university um, down in Pomona, California, we found these laboratory guys that were really interested in measuring human physiolog- physiological stimulation to gauge people's reaction. We ran tests that could show all these films shot at different frame rates and do what they call a double blind study, mixing them and never tell anyone what the order of events are. We hooked individuals up to electrocardiogram um, and they were sort of recording electrical activity in the brain. And we measured galvanic skin response, similar to a polygraph, all to measure the physiological stimulation at the different frame rates. It created this hyperbolic curve that got better and better. The higher the frame rate you went to, it was empirical. This was like a really epic discovery about how to make movies. That was our mission. And so they were hooking people up to all this, you know, all these machines and showing them all these different formats and trying to find out from a physiological standpoint, what has the best response. And so another quote from him in movies, people often do flashbacks and point of view shots as a gauzy, mysterious, distant kind of image. And I wanted to do just the opposite, which was to make the material of the mind even more real and high impact than reality. So in essence, Trumbull is looking at this and saying, I'm going to create a movie. So Brainstorm was designed, conceived, and written as a piece of material to introduce audiences to ShowScan. And they're using you know, science and really experimenting on people to find the right frame rate um, to be able to kind of dazzle them. What they ended up doing was they took a screenplay. The screenplay was called the George Dunlap tape and reworked it as a way to introduce ShowScan through the virtual reality segments. Do you guys know anything to just a side note? Do you guys know anything about the original screenplay? Jose? I do not. Okay. I do. Sure Bruce wrote do, it. do you know? <laughs> so do you know the premise of that original screenplay? Can you summarize that sucker? So uh, the, the, the premise of it was uh, Bruce Charles Rubin was fooling around with sort of the notion of like, what is a life? What does a life mean? Like, like, you know, what is it to be living? Um, and so the George Dunlop tapes was supposed to be the viewer living through his experience. And at the end of, of the film, uh, or I'm sorry, the screenplay, the camera's supposed to like pan back and you're supposed to realize that you've been watching a tape of his life um, and experiencing it that way. Um, and it's sort of like, I think, I 
think it was supposed to like pan out from like a, like a television set or like a view of it in some ways. And then you were to realize that like, you know, you were watching his life um, and experiencing it that way. Yeah. And that was, that was the first part of the story. So the original screenplay was much bigger. And so when they were looking at the screenplay, it was the idea that they were watching a tape um, that was actually being played by a machine and the machine. So the second part of the story was the machine would be looking for its creator and that creator would be George Dunlop. And so it would be trying to recreate biological life at a time when all that existed were tapes playing themselves out over and over. So that was the whole premise uh, was okay. the machine was right. watching the tape and then it was looking for George Dunlop because it's going through the sea of tapes and then it starts creating life because the question is what's real life or the experiences. So it's very metaphysical, right? So they yeah. look at that screenplay and they go, <laughs> okay, we got three movies here. Let's kind of pare it down to this one thing. Uh, and, and again, it's conceived to kind of show off show scan and Paramount had bought into it originally. So they were going to do the film, but then of course there's a shakeup, um, within the leadership of the studios and then theaters started coming back cause they were pitching it to theaters. Hey, we got show scan. We got 70 millimeter. It's going to be done this way, et cetera, et cetera. So many frames per second theaters came back and said, Hey man, that's too expensive. And unless Hollywood is start is going to be putting a lot more films in show scan, um, they were, they were not going to show it because they would have to retrofit, you know, fit all their cameras. So Paramount eventually backs out of the project. And so Trumbull's left with this, you know, script, this idea, and MGM steps in and says, well, we want to do the movie, but they're not going to do it in show scan. So MGM eventually settles on a way for him to shoot the film and try and recreate what he's trying to do. So it's not show scan, but it's a different format. So Trumbull instead shoots the virtual reality sequences in 24 frames per second in super Panavision 70 millimeter. Okay. So that's a huge screen in a huge format and it's in stereo, which is kind of a big deal for 83. The rest of the film is shot in 35 millimeter with an aspect ratio of 1.7 to one and it's in mono. So when you're watching the movie, it's a typical movie going experience for everybody. 35 millimeter it's in mono you put the headset on, you go into virtual reality and all of a sudden it blows up to 70 millimeter. And then all of a sudden you go to stereo, like this very powerful stereo track. So they film it, they go through it. There's about three weeks left of production. The holidays come around and everybody sort of takes a break around Thanksgiving and we get to Natalie Wood's tragedy. So when filming is almost complete, she only has a few scenes to do. They're about ready to wrap up with principal photography. Natalie Wood, her husband, Robert Wagner, um, they invite Christopher Walken because at the time, you know, Christopher Walken is from New York. It's the holidays. They say, well, you don't have to go home. Just come out with us. They do a weekend excursion to California's um, Catalina Island aboard their yacht, The Splendor. Do one of you guys kind of want to take away or, or describe the events that happened at this point? Or do you, do you know the details? I mean, it is so, a little bit foggy, right? Yes. Yeah. They, because so, even Robert Wagner has changed his story originally. So, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. So right. originally, <laughs> you know, she, they say, Oh, you know, we were drinking. Something must've happened. She must've fallen off the boat and drowned. Yeah. Uh, you know, Corner comes back and says, yes, we see, you know, she had alcohol in her system and she was taking, I think, some 
medication and some drugs. So, you know, the, the drinking had a little bit more of a, of a higher effect on her. I think around 2010 or so. 2011. Um, yep. Yeah. Robert Wagner comes out and says, ah, so she and I had a fight <laughs> and, you know, it kind of turns into this thing where it's like, we had a fight, uh, you know, she runs off and then I never see her again. And you're like, um, okay, maybe you should have said that 30 years ago when we were investigating. Uh, so they actually went back and appended the uh, original death certificate to say, you know, she drowned with, what was it called? Like un, undetermined circumstances or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's they reopen the case and and the coroner, you know, basically says instead of um the death being you know ruled by accidental death, um they come back and say, well, you know, at 88 at this point, Robert Wagner is now a person of interest and so they they do amend the death certificate and basically come back and say that, you know, there could be possibly foul play attached to it. Um and it wasn't that Wagner necessarily changed the story. Um I'll, I'll just read some facts here. So there, there's a couple of things and this goes back and forth. So you have to, you have to take what you read about this with a grain of salt, because keep in mind about 2011, the captain that was there, Davern, he's trying to sell his story to the trade publications. And he's out there, you know, to the inquire and stuff like that saying, Hey, I lied when the police originally interviewed me. You know, these two had a knockdown, drag out fight, and um, you, you've got Natalie Wood's husband, you know, basically saying, um, telling Christopher Walken, hey, what are you trying to do? Sleep with my wife. And there's like this big blow up. So he's out there pitching this story so that the tabloids would pick it up. But it does start to raise some questions because when they go back and look at, hey, well, what were the police doing? Did they look under her fingernails? Did they do this, that, or the other? There were a lot more questions because at the time, everybody kind of just took it, the accident at face value. But here's what we do know. Like if you go and look through everything, nobody debates these facts. It was a two-night event. There was a lot of drinking. The second night, all four members of the party, so Wagner Wood, Walken, and Davern, the captain, had dinner on shore, during which a lot of wine was consumed, then returned to the Splendor where more wine and scotch were consumed. At some point, glass was broken. And it's 83, so probably a lot of cocaine was uh, consumed. Don't don't know. They know wine and scotch. Allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly. Um, And they know glass was broken. They don't know how. There's a lot of stories going back and forth. Sometime shortly after midnight, Wagner informed Davern, the captain, that Natalie Wood was missing. During this time, Walken was in his stateroom asleep. Approximately six hours later, Wood's body was found floating in the water off um, Catalina. So those are the facts, meaning nobody can dispute that. Now, everything we've talked about in terms of, well, somebody changed their story, they had a fight, he said, she said, that all starts to come back in 2011, and so now they look at her death and say it, it's a bit more mysterious, and it wasn't so cut and dry at the time. But nobody knows. Nobody knows. You can you can look at interviews with Christopher Walken. People you know have talked about it. Nobody really comments on it. Christopher Walken even hired you know attorneys in 2011 um, to kind of protect himself. But uh, a lot of it is speculation. And well, her body did have bruises it on did. it as well. They were undetermined what the cause of those were. Right, because she was on so some the, medication yeah. and everything else yeah. that might have caused it. 
I think what doesn't make sense is like, I get that there's a lot of, not there's a lot of alcohol. I get that, you know, there was maybe an argument over alleged infidelity. I think that was a big, a big thing, you know? Um, also it's the eighties. Why the four of them are kicking it up. I don't know. It's just, it just sounds very Springer like in some ways, but but what's weird is, is he says, you know, she she goes to sleep and then I can't find her on a boat, on a boat. You can't find her on a boat. What's going on? We've seen those um, big yachts. It was probably huge, man. I haven't seen a picture. They're like small I'm on planets. a boat. <laughs> I don't think it was. I don't think it was like your Jordan Belfort size like yacht. I don't know if it was. That right. Big. So I and so it, she was also dressed in a manner that would suggest. So the, the, the running theory was that she was trying to sleep the dinghy, was, <laughs> which, um, you know, it's the smaller, the smaller boat that's yep. attached to it was bumping up against the thing. She apparently threw on like a house coat. She, she had her nightgown on a slipper. The, the running theory was that she went out there to either try to tie it um, tighter so that it wasn't banging or um, to tie it looser so that it would float away and not bang on the whatever. And then she might've just slipped and fell accidentally. Right. Um, but then when you mix that whole, like, you know, Wagner was saying, Oh, we had the argument and then she decided to go sleep. I think we argued some more. And then I was like, mm, where's Natalie? And then she was like gone. It just, it's, it's odd. It's super odd. It's very odd. And and there's a lot of rumors. And again, I don't think any of it's proved because everybody will say something different, even on the set right. of making the film. Some people were coming back and saying, oh yeah, Natalie Wood and Christopher Walken had this huge affair during the making of the film. And others are like, nope, that didn't happen at all. So what's crazy about this whole thing is there's a lot of stories around um, the production of this but at the end of the day, it's like, well, these are the things that we know. Now, how the glass broke, who said what, et cetera, nobody knows at this point. There, there's no way to prove it. Um, and as of right now, it's it's my understanding, it's still sort of an unresolved open case. Um, yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, even filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino have referenced it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So the whole sub plot of Brad Pitt's character who may have killed his wife. That's in reference to this particular incident itself. So, yeah. Yep. And then you mentioned, I don't know if you want to get into this, but you mentioned the insurance stuff afterwards. Yep. We're, we're going there. Oh my God. Yeah. So this so is where strange. it gets really crazy. So <laughs> yeah. the, this, the events happen. Everybody is notified of Natalie Wood's death. Now, one thing you got to keep in mind at this point in time is MGM had some serious financial problems. They had a string of bombs, okay, leading up to and Just for reference, wasn't MGM just sold for like $8 billion to Amazon? <laughs> to Amazon, right. Yep. Okay. Um, MGM has constantly had financial troubles. Constantly, so this yes. is, yeah. So as soon as they hear about this death, the, their knee-jerk reaction is that they want to shut down production and they just want to claim the insurance money. So they're looking at, possibly getting $15 million if they scrap the film, file the insurance claim, um, and basically fire Trumbull and the whole crew. So, you know, Natalie Wood passes through this tragedy, and a few days later, Trumbull gets called into the office, and MGM says, well, you're fired, and the crew's fired, and we're not going to release the the film, and insurance company's going to pay us $15 million. So most of Natalie Wood's major scenes were already filmed. Only a few shots remained that actually could be finished with a double because Trumbull's going back to MGM and saying, I can finish this film. It's, 
it's pretty much done. Just let me get in there. He actually works on it. And they're like, nope, we want the 15 million. So Lloyd's of London, who's the insurance company, ends up bringing everybody into court, goes through deposition. They're interviewing the cast and crew. Cast crew Trumbull's like, yeah, we've got a finished product here. We just need to do a couple of shots. We can use, you know, a double. We're good. All of her scenes are done. And uh, MGM's like, nope, we're just not going to release it. It won't fit the script that we agreed to, all this other stuff. So what happens is the insurance company gives Trumbull the money. It's approximately $6 million to finish the film. And Trumbull says, all right, with that $6 million, I can add the effects. I can do this, that, and the other. But keep in mind, Trumbull didn't get to finish the film in the way he intended, but he did with that $6 million get to finish the film that he could make given the circumstances. Uh, and then as soon as the film, this is where it also gets weird. There's a lot of buzz around this film based on the technology, what Trumbull was doing, the pedigree behind the camera, in front of the camera. And all of a sudden, a bunch of studios were kind of interested, like, well, if you don't want it, MGM, sell it to us. And so MGM starts shopping the film around. When they start gauging that a bunch of studios were ready to buy it, MGM's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe we do have a hit on our hands, so we're not going to sell it. And um, they decide to go ahead and hold on to it and release it, okay? And, and you talked about this, Jose. So this is the last thing I want to talk about in the production. This is a quote from, from Douglas Trumbull. I had to personally make a life decision many years ago when Natalie Wood died under very suspicious circumstances during the making of Brainstorm. I just had to stop. I had been a writer, director all my life, and I decided it wasn't for me because I was put through a really challenging personal experience. I do not think the story has ever been told. I don't know the story myself, but I know what my experience was. I decided to leave the movie business. So he never directed mm. again and just went to concentrate on, you know, photography, filming, the stuff that he was credited to in terms of director, all these short films like Back to the Future, The Ride. Um, Spielberg, you know, brought him in to kind of fix that and, and shoot some things. But this whole brainstorm production and all the events that happened behind the scenes pretty much took one of our visionary artists and he said, I am done with this industry and walked away from it. Well, it's interesting yeah. that you bring up the studio stuff too. Um, looking back at the box office, the when this movie was released, it's only released in 100, 149 screens, um, which, you know, today it would be like 3,000. But, you know, back then, something around 1,000 to 1,500 is pretty good. Even like 700 is, you know, considered a lot. So even when they release this film, it's kind of released to die in a way because they never really release it well, huge. Well, keep in mind, not a lot of theaters could play 70 millimeter even at that time period. It, yes, so that's also the case. In order for it, in order for you to see it at time of you know theatrical exhibition, you had to be able to go to a theater that um, had you know the 35 millimeter to 70 millimeter conversion. So. You, you're going to have two formats and it had to be able to displayed in that. So I'm sure that limited some of the release. I don't know if there was a, just a plain 35 millimeter print, but you're basically talking about two things. The, the format, the viewing format was going to change. So you needed, you know, a projector that could handle that. And then also from a sound perspective, you have to be able to go from mono to stereo. So I, I think a lot of people forget. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about movies in the seventies and even in the early eighties, uh, you know, a lot of times you went to the theater and it was um, 35 millimeter mono. That's what you were watching. So. And it's a guy up there. Like the reels <laughs> got to be changed. I mean, it's like, you know, yes, someone up there. Cranking it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, just to go back to the, to go back to the whole um, 
the production sort of fiasco mm-hmm. thing. I um, I seem to remember that. So Judd Trumbull was was well when she died. Trumbull said that almost immediately access to everything was shut off for him. Yes. Like he couldn't get onto the sets. He couldn't get on to whatever. He couldn't look at whatever. They called him into the office and they were like, it's done. We're taking the check. Like, forget it. And he was begging and pleading with them to, to finish it. And then he went to Lloyd's of London and Lloyd's of London said, you know, look, we're, we're going to give you the money or what have you. Um, and then I, I think at that point, Trumbull started shopping it around because MGM was like, we're going to take the check. Like, we don't care. And then that's when I think MGM started to hear, oh my God, they want to purchase it. And just to also add on to the story, I think what, how it ended up was that Lloyds of London lent them the money for profit share as well. So it was the first time in like film history or studio history that an insurer became a like a player in yes. terms of the profits and the production itself. I don't think that's ever happened again. Um, but it's 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 super weird and I can kind of see why Trumbull was like, I'm done with the studio. Um studio making films, you know, but if well, it was a success then a lot of people would have jumped on this bandwagon if this movie would have made money. The insurance company was like, oh, that was easy. Yeah, right. a lot of insurance companies. But what's funny, too, is if you see some behind-the-scenes footage, um, especially when they went back to kind of finish it for the $6 million, the uh, cast and crew had made all these red T-shirts, and it was, you know, Brainstorm brought to you by Lloyds of London coming theatrically, like, so... <laughs> They were sort of (laughs) championing the fact that the insurance company had stepped in, but there's so many great stories. Um, Well, I hate using the word great. Yeah, It it is an entirely (laughs) tragic event, but I find what is great about the story is here's a cast and crew that believed in the product. They believed in what they were doing and, you know, through they, they stuck to their guns and sort of stuck it to the studio here's an organization that comes in and they find the money and um, you know, they were all deeply affected by Natalie Wood's death. But at the same time, they saw this as a way I think to honor her by just saying, look, let's get this film out there because she, in she gave a great performance and you know, it's a way to memorialize her. So it's an interesting story. And like I said, I, I do find a little bit of inspiration in that, you're right, Jose. I mean, the next day, the studio's like, we're locking you out of this. We're doing this. They fired everybody. He he went to the editing room and locked himself in there to where his wife is bringing him dinner just so he could show <laughs> how they could finish the film by just changing the script a little bit. Um, but there were also scenes that they had to take out. So there was a virtual reality sequence on a boat. There was another sequence about drowning. And so they yeah. removed all of that stuff and shot different things. But it's a very troubled production. But again, the inspirational part to this is uh, in spite of all of that, you had a director and a cast that really believed in it and, you know, they stuck to their guns and they got it made. So um, I think that part is, again, it's the great part. It's the inspirational part. But the stuff that led up to it, it's so sad because Natalie Wood is uh, she was one of the greatest actresses that, you know, we had in American cinema at that time. Yeah. It's hard enough to make a film and now you have all this other stuff going on. And then literally your studio is like, we just want that guaranteed money. And yeah. You're like, well, it's, it's a reminder, you know, we love talking about films and we love talking about it in terms of the artistry or what did you feel? Was it fun, et cetera. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still a business. And that's what makes it so fascinating from my perspective is how does the artistry compete with the business and still make a successful product? I mean, at the end of the day, 
you're talking about indie films making across the finish line. You can't compare an indie film uh, to a million dollar blockbuster. Um, but at the same time in my head, I'm like a million dollar blockbuster should never fail. It's got more resources. <laughs> it's got all of this stuff going behind it. Um, indie films, you can probably be more forgiving, but again, that's what makes movies so fascinating is it's, it's amazing to talk about art and commerce coming together and watching that battle unfold. And this is one of those examples. Um, oh, and one, one last thing, I guess, yeah. before we get into the, the film itself, I guess, um, when I watched this on VHS and on um, cable, we didn't, we didn't get the, the anamorphic and then to, to the 185 or 17, whatever, it was just pan and scan. Yeah. And so seeing it for the first time in Blu-ray and watching the aspect ratios change. Um, I don't know. Some people find it distracting. I found it pretty awesome. I loved it. So it was, it was great. Well, you'll see that on the dark Knight and some of the Nolan films, they will show the IMAX yeah. footage, you know, combined with the, the regular theatrical. I, I like it. Um, yeah. it, it doesn't distract me, but, uh, I, you're right. I think it's time to talk about the film. There's a, there's yeah. a lot of stuff to read. That one guy is so pissed right now. We're like 75 <laughs> minutes in and he's like not have, Oh my God. Yeah. I always think about that guy. I know we still love you. Whoever you are, you're, guy, you're still guy awesome out there. guy out there. I hope you still the love time us. Guy. Can we call him the time guy? Time time guy, guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to start with you, Jose. So I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into the details, but I'm really curious, like your initial reactions. I, when we review films before we go into the detail, I always like to ask somebody like what you saw it. Can you, can you summarize like your experience with it and just get a taste of good, bad, and different. But, um, you've, you've given us some amazing, you know, information behind the scenes, but now you sit down and you watch this thing, knowing everything that happened behind the scenes, like how, how was the viewing experience for you? So uh, growing up watching this, I do remember just sort of being jazzed by the conceit, this machine that, you, you know, you can like feel and experience other people's like uh, visions or what they're going through. Um, but what I what really surprised me was just the depth of the emotional drama that the Natalie Wood character and the, the Christopher Walken character brought to the story. Um, and just their whole interaction and sort of um, rekindling their romance. Um, I wasn't ready for that sort of really deep emotional impact. Like I, I had, I loved it. And I was just kind of like, okay, that's that there's bro, Bruce Joel Rubin right there. Um, the, you know, the Bruce Joel Rubin that I know, <laughs> don't know, but, um, and, you know, Louise Fletcher's death scene, it's probably, I know for me, it caused a lot of trauma as a kid. I was like, I don't want to have a heart attack ever because it's <laughs> going to be like her. Yeah. But she really just like kicks out that scene. It's like, I think she said that that was probably her favorite. This was one of her favorite projects because she got to play that, that like dying. And I mean, so there's that one point where she's, she's dying and, and she like scoots the chair down the stairs or whatever. And you can see her as she's going through this pain, like stealing herself to walk the four steps to the machine. And I'm just like living for it. I'm like, Louise Fletcher, you are absolutely amazing. Um, but I, you know, that opening, it, you know, it was very Tron reminiscent because you've got all like the shapes as they're configuring everything. I love the uh, sort of spherical credits that are opening up. Um, towards the camera. That's great. 
Um, I also like some of the little touches about, I thought that it was really real about scientific or like, you know, geeky sort of science people. So like the, doing the toast from the beakers, which was kind of cute or the way that like Fletcher, like reads that one guy, she's like, Oh, now I remember you from Caltech. You sucked. Um, <laughs> or like, you know, just like the, you know, the scientists like uh, pranking on each other, like that, that Gordy guy who is instantly an asshole because he hooks up, you know, Christopher walking to the monkey and it's like, what are you doing? Um, he also suffers like the, the most horrible death next to Louise Fletcher, yep. obviously um, in the movie as well. Um, what else did I like? I also like that this was basically a seventies movie, right? Um, although it was in the eighties, it's, it's written very seventies. And, and by that, I mean, the viewer has to make their own connections and sometimes plot points are literally thrown out in a couple sentences and then there's a payoff later. So for example, I think a lot of people were complaining about the narrative structure of the film, which honestly, I, I, to me, it's, 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 here's the product, here's the introduction. We're going to give you a dazzling demo reel sequence, and then we're going to develop it to this stronger thing where you can actually feel emotions. You can feel like the full strong memory. And then we're going to show you how it's good. It rekindles the marriage, how it's bad. The guy gets stuck in the porn loop and he's having endless orgasms for like two days, it seems. Um, and then the military application. And then it moves to this weird sort of like, uh, um, you know, I'm just going to destroy this because no one can use it right. And um, I think a lot of people complain about that, but I thought that that it was perfectly simple to me. Um, but back to the whole seventies thing, you know, they're in that meeting with the military people and the one guy with the white hair who's looking like the red dragon guy. He's like, <laughs> look at my red dragon. Um, but the, you know, the one guy's like, we've been working on the application too for higher brain functions, you know, so that you can start to like, you know, feel and walk in sort of says, oh, we're doing that too. And then it pays off in the scene where they record Natalie Wood and she has that strong memory of fighting with, uh, with Michael Brace or what have you. Right. Um, so some, some people were criticizing the movie, like, where does that come from? I don't understand how that just suddenly happened. Well, they were developing it. Right. And so they just kind of threw out that line and then there was a payoff, but um, yeah, I just, I thought it was really great. I love the emotional impact of it. Cinematography obviously is amazing. The death scene. Um, I don't know. I can't, I can't think of anything else to talk about. Oh, actually. So I thought what was interesting was the, the thing that Hal goes through the guy that's stuck in the orgasm loop. Yep. So after that happens, they put him in a hyperbaric chamber and they test all his functions to see how he's doing. And he's sort of like, he's sort of like, um, Oh, I feel stronger than ever. And even has like a standing orgasm. Like he's like talking to them and he goes, Ugh. yeah, he's oh. like a side effect from the whole thing. It was yeah. weird. Right. But if you think about it, you know, sex burns calories and it releases all these endorphins. And so the, they were showing the power of this machine because he was like, I feel like I could do anything. And then it turns out anything is I want to play golf, but you know, whatever <laughs> he had this renewed vigor and he's like, ah, my life is better or whatever. Um, so I have, I found that kind of interesting. And then, um, yeah, uh, the, the whole thing is great. I have a theory about the end, which I can you remind me to piggyback oh, on yeah. that. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the one other thing I really, really did enjoy too was Yurisich's um, photography. So um, when they're using the brainstorm thing, they, they flash the lights 
um, on their face, then you can kind of see it's like a, like a dance of light or somewhat. So when Walken shows his memory of her to Natalie Wood, you do see that like light dazzle on her face. But later when they're underneath the blanket, right? You're yep. sort of like, what the hell are they doing? But the light is showing through the blanket and it's, it's putting little shadows on their faces, kind of like the brainstorm thing, but they're doing it in real life. And they're sort of feeling their own emotions through themselves and with each other. I just thought that was a beautiful sort of imagery that he tied together. I don't know why he hasn't done other movies as a DP, but yeah, I loved it. I'm really curious about your viewing Brad. So I know you're a big science fiction yeah. Guy. So yep. I'm, I'm curious on your initial reaction to this one. <laughs> so here's a few things initially, just to get them out of the way. First off, that woman smokes entirely <laughs> too many cigarettes. She smokes like 11,000 cigarettes. Here's, Every I wrote this down. Um, Brad's going to say something. She's smoking in the lab. You're poor, smoking in the lab. Yeah, oh my God. Poor Brad is going to have a fit when he sees how much smoking is going on in this laboratory. That was what I wrote down. <laughs> oh my Lord. Oh my Lord. So I knew Jose was going to bring some thunder on his initial reaction. So I was like, well, I think it's funny to kind of look at this. Like he was talking about when they put on the thing and the light starts to flash. I started to think about, oh my gosh, you remember in cyberpunk, Troy, when you put on the thing and you did the brain dance, right? Mm-hmm. They literally, they got that from this movie. Yeah. Like I, they had to have, because it's yep. literally the same thing. Um, so I was like, Oh, there's like cyberpunk taking this idea and doing it in a video game. And then I was like, okay. Also the guy works on 2001. There's a character in this movie called how I was like, that's a pretty, surely that's gotta be a callback, right? Like that's gotta be, it's gotta be. Um, so as for the movie, like I, I, I enjoyed this movie. Um, I had a little hard time buying the relationship aspect of this movie. And I think that is the thing that kind of keeps me from really loving this movie. I don't understand the relationship that Louise Fletcher and Christopher Walken had at one point. I I thought it was professional. And then there's like, he kind of kisses her a little bit more intimately than I think like people who are working professionally should do. Um, And then obviously he gives her this kind of memory tape and says, you know, I I actually really have these feelings for you. I know maybe um, I could be a jerk, but deep down, here's how I think about our relationship um, against all the anger and frustration and all that. Um, And so they rekindle and I just kind of thought that was just a little, I, I don't know. It was too like A to B. Like that was like a, a messy sort of act one problem and we're going to solve it in act two so we can get to act three. And I don't know. That's the one because I, I love the science. I love the idea. I love that they kind of tell you like, oh, any good scientific idea will be ruined by pornography in the military. Like that's <laughs> – Yep. And if you look at <laughs> it, like that. on history, like, yeah, like the Wright brothers, like not pornography, but like just, the military wow. has destroyed. I mean, the Mile, the mile High, High Club. Club okay. So I don't know, maybe. Uh, like you know, the military has destroyed this pure sense of flight. You know, now we have you know killing machines. So you know, I, I think there's a lot of these parallels that are really cool. The idea is cool. Like seeing this kind of subdued. I don't want to say subdued. I don't know, not the Christopher Walken that we know now, but having this Christopher Walken 
that, you know, he was believable, but it, like, it's nice to see him not turned up all the time and just let him act. Cause you kind of restrained. Forget, yeah. Yeah. This guy can, yeah. is a good actor. Like, you know, we're naming all these films he was in early in his career and you're like, yeah, this guy is great. You know, don't, yes, balls of fury. He's, you know, weird and wedding crashers, you know, all these films that are just, he's just kind of Christopher Walken now. Um, in this film, he's a scientist and it's, it's cool to see, you know, I, I think also there are some strings that don't get sort of kind of corrected at the end. I don't know. Correct is not the right word, but it get, you know, the military stuff kind of falls along the wayside. Once the, once the whole shift turns to like getting this final tape, like all that other stuff is just kind of gone. Even the son, um, his problem that, the, you know, something happens to him. Like that's just kind of like, ah, don't worry about it. His kid will be fine. Um, but I, I really liked it. I mean, high concept science fiction to me is, is, is really exciting to kind of see these ideas, see the science behind it. Um, you know, they're even getting into like weird things like 3d printing, like some of the science and some of the stuff they're doing in this film is, uh, kind of crazy. You know, even the automation stuff, like this is really, really hitting at stuff that is today like a part of our lives. But I mean, thinking about it in 1983, you're like, Holy shit. Like they're way above like where they should be. Um, so that's, that's cool too. Um, I just, I just really wish I liked the relationship aspect of this movie more. Cause I think parts would have hit me a little bit harder if I did. Um, but I do plan on seeing this again at some point in time and, and seeing maybe like, Oh, now that I've gotten past all the science stuff and all this, like, can I focus on the relationship part and, and maybe dive into that and, and see if I enjoyed the film a little bit more? Not to say that I didn't enjoy it. Like, I, I really like this movie a lot. Yeah. So but between the three of us, I saw this in the theater at 11. <laughs> so, 11. 11. So I saw it as Trumbull kind of wanted people to experience it, not on home video or home media. Um, and, and I got to tell you, I remember to this day being blown away by those virtual reality sequences because you're sitting in the movie theater, you, you feel like you're watching a normal film. And then all of a sudden to have that picture, I mean, think about going from 35 to 70 millimeter, it doubles, right? Technically. And that's the first time you've ever seen it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm yeah. sure I saw 70 millimeter films before. I mean, it, no, but not the, not the shift, but not, not the like, shift, not yeah, walking in and yeah. going. Cause my dad was like, you know, Hey, this is going to be a different viewing experience. They're experimenting with these things in 11. I'm like, I don't, can we, can we go see the ninja movie again? Cause I like ninjas. <laughs> so to, to walk into the movie theater and watch a film and then all of a sudden, you know, shift, you're like, Oh my God. I'm, it, it was, it was visceral. I, 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 I can remember as if it were yesterday going through that. Um, and yeah, imagine going to see a 3D film and not knowing what 3D was and then yeah. someone just saying, hey, sit and watch this. It's completely different. Well, it's like coming at you. I, rem I remember that yeah. vividly because of the first one. So I, I think. But no, but no one ex like explaining to you what 3D was. Yes. Like you right, just right, right, kind of right. go. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and in fact, here's the thing that that whole uh, toxic tape sequence with Michael's son um, really freaked me out as a kid. Like that scared the bejesus out of me. Um, and the other thing that I was in total awe of is, 
you've got that sequence that scared me. At, at, at 11, was it the boobies? Yeah, I was like, oh my <laughs> the God, boobies. what yeah. is going on? Uh, so yeah, that was an experience. Was too. that part of 70 millimeter? Yeah, because it's a virtual reality. Yeah, so yeah, you're like, <laughs> I, I'm seeing that in 70 millimeter. Holy cow, it's the greatest movie ever made, right? That's why my brother wanted to watch it all the time. Yeah, it's like, what, Ninja, <laughs> Ninja, what? <laughs> I mean, this. Um, and I, I mean, it was one of the most immersive movie going experiences that I can remember. So I liked starting with that question because I remember Spartacus. I remember 2001. I mean, I remember seeing Wild Bunch in the movie theater when it was making its rounds again. Um, I remember my first movie going to the park. I mean, movie going experiences. This was what it was about and just being kind of blown away. It, it was so immersive. Now, as a home media experience, even with the best setup, and I'm, I'm not saying I have the best setup. But I mean, I've got Atmos, I've got the, the 4K, the, the whole nine yards, right? What you're left with, I think, is something mildly interesting in terms of visuals and a neat story concept, but something feels off when it's not immersive. Um, the, the visuals, the script, and the performances don't feel cohesive to me. Like I like Walken's performance. I love Natalie Wood's performance. Louise Fletcher is is good, but it doesn't gel with the story and the script and the visuals. It the visuals really don't get interesting till the back half of it because everything leading up to that in the virtual is just an amusement park ride. It's stuff that you would see like in an IMAX or you know the little uh, get into this you know mechanical thing and it's going to move as you're seeing you know a roller coaster ride. Um, but, but something doesn't feel cohesive and the movie really feels like a twilight zone episode merged with an IMAX show reel. And while I'm watching, I'm going, well, the IMAX show reel stuff isn't really great until the boobies. And then the, uh, <laughs> and then the back part where it gets oh, visually are you ready for my joke. No, not yet. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Do I, do I, do I, no. More like boob storm <laughs> <laughs> okay um but yeah i mean the 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 i'm trying to get invested in the religion i agree with you brad i i don't think the the natalie wood christopher walken chemistry exactly work all the time and i want to care care more about that relationship but there's just there's something not cohesive about it and i'm i'm having a hard time when i watch this film separating myself from Oh yeah, this is the movie that um, I just would blew me away because of how I saw it. And that whole toxic tape sequence, even when it played this time, I'm like, I got chills because my, my brain was going back to being 11 years old and going, you, you may have peed your pants when that happened. Cause it was so intense, but you guys kind of text on touched on this. The premise is amazing. Um, scientists invent a brain computer interface, enabling sensations to be recorded from a person's brain and it's converted to tape for another person to experience. So like you said, 1983, they're not just talking about virtual reality. They're talking about virtual reality in terms of the full sense, not just the visual or the audio, but you feel everything else. And you guys touched on this a little too. The uh, progression of technology it starts with a big helmet and they start refining it, refining it to where it's this nice portable. You just kind of put it on your head. I mean, that's technology at a glance with the telephone, the portable phone, you know, yeah, everything, wireless, uh, Bluetooth. Well, yeah, I mean, they're talking about like, you know, chipsets and all that yeah. stuff. I mean, obviously, 
microchips have been around for a long time, but you know, shrinking it down, making it more efficient, like that stuff's like really, really important today. So yeah. it's crazy that they're talking about that stuff. And you nailed it. New technology comes out and the porn industry and the military industrial complex is always the first to adopt it. I mean, I remember when Blu-ray and HDVD were going through their war and you would read articles and people would literally say, well, the format is going to survive based on what is the porn industry going to choose? Because the porn industry is the reason why we have VHS over beta. Yep. <laughs> so... Um, it, it, it is, is it is fascinating in 1983, they're putting these concepts out there and just saying, well, this is how it works. And I found that stuff immensely entertaining and fascinating, but can we talk about some things that don't make sense for a minute? Um, <laughs> yeah. why does the virtual reality experience change from first person to third person? Um, does it mean that the third person is memory? or in the first person is what they experience. See, when Christopher Walken hands over the tape and says, here, I want you to you know, experience what I think, um, everything leading up to that was the first person perspective. And then the movie from then on starts to shift from first to third person. And I didn't understand that. Like that actually took me out of the film. So I, th I think that is, so like I said, this is, uh, it, it, that's what I like about 70s cinema is that, you know, they'll throw stuff out to you and you sort of have to kind of connect your own feelings on it or project your own feelings on it. But that's when they were talking about the, the working with higher brain functions. And so what happened was, is the, is the machine is it, it will pick up on your strongest emotions and your memories, and it will record that as a burst. So when Walken was looking at that recording, he took out, came out of it, but he was angry and he didn't know why. Um, but because he was experiencing her emotional anger against him. And so when it starts to shift like that and you're seeing those other memories, that's, that's because they use, like Brad said, um, Cliff Robertson is like, well, now I got this superconducting microchip and that's what boosts the brainstorm project into those higher functions so that they can project anxiety, which is what the military was doing. And so when the little aqua boy, I call him aqua boy cause he's always in that damn pool, right? right? <laughs> Anytime you see this kid, the kid, he's coming out of the pool. Like a, he's, he a, lives he's, in a pool. he's a shit bag kid. Yeah. Can we agree that we kid's can, an asshole? Yeah, he sucks. Yeah. That kid sucks. He, he, well, everyone, <laughs> <laughs> the parents are separating. He, found his solace in the swimming pool. I, I guess I, you know, I, I'll right, say well, Aqualad's he's a still little an asshole. Odd. Yeah. He's still an asshole. Aqualad is still asshole. kind of an asshole. Yeah. And by the way, that is Eric Lively who became one of the, um, um, I'm going to say Grisham, but it's not Griswold. He's one of the Griswold kids in the vacation movies. Oh, okay. I think European vacation. European. Eric, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 European vacation, Eric okay. Lively. Yeah. All right. That that's the kid. So when, when Aqua kid puts the thing on, Right. He is experiencing that military tape that says you are going to be watching anxiety da, 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 or whatever. And the anxiety that's forced on him gets converted into that nightmare of his father locking him in the machine. Right. And so that's that's part and parcel of the, and, the and machine get, tapping I, into the yeah. higher brain functions. And I get that part, the brainwashing perspective where it's like, here's some toxic uh, brainwaves 
that are basically going to make you see things that don't exist, that component made sense. The beginning component where it's like, hey, here's the first person because you're seeing this other person, what they're tasting, that makes sense. But there's a sequence when they're making the bridge between it's just sight, sound, taste, everything to the sort of tox toxic, we can kind of brainwash you a little bit. Memories is when it starts to shift to third person. And that's where I struggle with because my memories aren't in third person when I'm remembering interactions with people and everything else, I'm still remembering them in first person. I'm remembering the feelings, emotions and everything else. So yeah, I had a hard time with the transition of the science fiction logic where it's like, Hey, the first part of it, I get it. And then as the science progresses, you lost me in the middle. And then when you get to the toxic portion, it's like, Oh, I'm back with you that. And, and that's the thing with science fiction is it's, it's science fiction. So it's setting up its own rules and I think what's crucial for a science fiction film is you have to make sure the viewer understands what the rules are and you got to play by those rules. And when you don't play by those rules, it'll take you out of it. Well, I, so for me, I was like, Oh, a lot of these emotions and these strong memories that people have, maybe they are experiencing like their out of body experience. And so we've all had these memories of things that were, we have an out of body experience where we remember it as, us in the third person seeing ourselves. So I was thinking like, Oh, these are so strong of emotions and memories that they are, they're literally their out of body experiences. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Brad too, got it. Brad got it. Brad got it. <laughs> that, that kind of makes sense. Um, but I, and I would agree with that, but I, I also agree with any criticism that comes back and says, you didn't draw that line enough for me to catch on to it as an oh, average viewer. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that makes sense also, how you explained it. I'm with you now, but I would need Brad. I didn't do it as well. <laughs> you, you did okay. You were good. <laughs> but as, as Brad explains that, I'm like, okay, I, I, I buy that to a certain degree. But again, from a storytelling perspective, I like challenging movies, but I mean, let's face it. This is, gr this is good science fiction concept. But I, I would be the first to throw the first criticism that it's not good science fiction storytelling. By the way, the judge today told me, um, he was like, I think you're going to need to re-explain it and don't use such crazy three-cent words or three, $3 <laughs> words or whatever. I was like, okay. Um, but I will also add, I will also note that, um, so the beginning uh, VR stuff is in anamorphic. So you've got the bending around right. the, the lens or whatever, um, which, you know, kind of approximates how we see the world with our peripheral vision, mm -hmm. right? Um, but if you'll take, no take note that when the, um, when the machine starts to do like the higher brain functions and you're getting the memories, the memories, um, that bend is gone. So if you, when you, oh, if that, you rewatch it, that's a good point because, I think about that. and I think it's, I think it's because it's, it's a stronger emotion as if you are experiencing it out of body. Can I make a confession? Um, so when we were told we were going to get this, um, I bought it. And then sometimes I'm like, Oh, I want to watch it. Um, on this TV down here in my basement that doesn't have anything hooked up to it except for Roku. So I'll buy it digitally. And then I was getting ready to go to bed one night and I was like, um, I'm going to start this movie and just see, and I started on my iPad and then I was like, wait a minute. No, 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 This is not a iPad iPhone movie. Yeah. So on your, like it shifts 
from that thing into like a little small box on your, I mean, it's tiny. And I'm like, no. So I was like, no, this is not how this movie was intended. I mean, I already know Christopher Nolan hates when people watch stuff on their iPad, but I was just going to check it out. And like, I was going to start over anyway, but I just wanted to check it out. And like, it literally goes to the, you know, your full size. And then it goes like literally like a third. And I'm like, Mm, no, this is not how this film is intended. All right. You guys are helping me out with this a little bit. So here's the other problem I had with it. There's a whole sequence when the military, so I military application, I totally get it. Brainwashing, that kind of stuff makes, makes sense. That whole toxic experience with, with the kid totally buy into well, they also could have done it like a positive thing like you know helping cure ptsd or things like that but no it's always it's the be military negative. is the bad right no, so no. i don't understand um controlling fighter planes like how was this thing going to control fighter planes and shoot other fire fighter planes down i don't remember that being sort of a part of the technology or they explain that piece very well the whole emotions and sort of transference of conscience from one person to another I totally get that concept. Now, I might have struggled with the first person, third person, but conceptually, I buy into that. But when they have the guy sitting in the simulator with his arms crossed and he's like, I'm shooting fighter jets down or I'm coming out of a barrel roll with my thought, I'm like, when did this happen? Because I don't understand, was telekinesis also part of what this thing was designed for? I thought it was just a transference of thoughts, feelings, memories, everything else. You want, I have ahead. no defense for that. I have okay. no. De- I have no defense for that. I think it's. I think it's the red dragon guy with the white hair. Or I think he was dealing they, with that. Yeah. Did they have it so, on the missile and they could feel what the missile was feeling and so therefore they could guide the missile? I don't. How did it work? I don't think I that was that. what that was for. I thought they were doing like G force training and Gordy was not able was was kind of able to not feel the G forces. So to no, train, I think it was. I think he was flying it. He was flying it and deploying weapons with yes. his mind. And okay. They were I mean, like, I know that was yeah. part of it too, but I thought mostly it was for like training for G force. No. Cause they make that thing. They're like, what happened? Watch what happens when we put him in a barrel roll, he'll come out of it by just thinking about coming out of it. And it's like, huh? Okay. That doesn't, uh, but you're right. Telekinesis was not part yeah. of it. Although I suppose you can make the argument that, you know, there is a theory that if we were to use like, like, more of our brain capacity, it could open the the possibility of telekinesis or telepathy, right? Maybe, but again, the the one big criticism I'll throw to the film is I love the concept. I love the science. I mean, I, I love seeing 80s computers. There's something aesthetically about 80s computers and that technology that from a set design perspective is so much cooler than just seeing iPads and our technology in like 2021, um, and maybe it's cause I'm an eighties kid, but I, I love the concepts. I love everything about it, but they're just these plot details as they carry them through. And they're saying, well, look at the evolution of this technology, which is the core story element. I don't think it exactly delivers, um, a nice seamless, um, viewer experience to kind of, yeah, I I'm following this all the way through. Like I struggled there. By the way, for you, for the viewer, for the viewers at home too, there's a volume control issue too. So like, I would turn it up because I can't like hear them, and then it would go to VR, and it was like, that made me a little crazy. So yeah. Well, I mean, I think they do a good job of kind of showing the evolution of the thing and it becoming a better piece of equipment. Now, does everything kind of fit nicely that they show like, Oh, it can do this now and do this. I've absolutely not, but it does show a good evolution and a good, like 
we're building this product and we're improving it each iteration, um, you know, even through the design, you know, I actually prefer the first design. I thought the helmet was awesome, but I know they're trying to make it like a consumer thing. So yeah. you can't sell that, but yeah. No, I get it. And and again, that's an aspect I liked about it. There's, there's just some cohesion that's kind of lacking. Um, and then there were other story elements, not to the technology that I was like, Oh, hold on a second. This is more plot driven story versus it's common sense or sort of natural or organic. Um, Jose, you talked about sort of the the estranged relationship and how it comes together. You're a big fan of it. I'm kind of with Brad. I don't know if I totally bought into it. Him living at a house with his wife and and the wife's boyfriends coming over, you know, for music night stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I don't. I is that early '80s? I I don't know. That just seemed weird. Um, so that's that's you know. <laughs> You know, I keep saying like 70s or whatever, but like they give you all the pieces. And quite honestly, you know, it isn't until they're at the party when she's talking to him and then that man comes over who does like the toast in the beginning um, and then puts his arm around her and then they walk off together. It's like that's when it's finally like, oh, okay. not only they separated, she's with a new boy or whatever. But I mean, they put it right out there. He he drives by the for sale sign, you know. The guy does the toast, and and I'm kind of like, who the hell is that, right? Um, and again, you just connect the pieces that they're mid separation, you know, that they're coming apart at the seams, and yet they're working together. And some of it comes together too, where he's like, why haven't we ever worked together? I fought against that. Maybe if we, and you know, the implication being maybe if we work together, we wouldn't be apart right now, you know? Yeah. Um, but then also more to um, Brad's point, the relationship between him and Louise Fletcher is a little odd, right? It is. I because couldn't when figure she, out if there was a past or not, or yeah, I, I get that. Or maybe that's what drove them apart. He had a little dalliance with her, maybe. Because, you know, when she passes, when she has the, I'm just going to say when she has the vision at the end, and again, I have a theory about that. When she has the vision at the end and there's the little memory bubbles, they all seem to center around him or a lot of her happiest memories are with him. So is that, is that professional or is it kind of like a May, December thing? She's older, he's the young guy, he's giving me life. Let's, let's get busy because he even like, kisses her on on the side of her face in the beginning and then he puts on his little varsity jacket and goes like riding away um and then there's that weird memory where she's on the roof of the church right and she's talking to that guy and it's like who's that guy um is it is is it her ex-husband is it um, a, per, a friend she's confiding in because she's talking about like Is work. The eyebrow guy, the guy with the eyebrow. The eyebrow guy, yes, yes. Yep. caterpillars, yes. crazy, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, and, but that end sequence, man, I just, I was like, I remember seeing that as a kid and being like, it's heaven. <laughs> um, but you know, just uh, that it's mind blowing the visual effects, well, absolutely beautiful. Louise Fletcher smoking in bed, do you think? Uh, she's smoking all the time. Dude, I think she time. was smoking while the wings were gone, like <laughs> up to heaven. <laughs> I, I, that was another note. I'm like, there's no way she dies of a heart attack. She's dying of emphysema. Like, yeah. really, <laughs> well, no. so there, there are two things. I, I'll tell you what. I, there are two things you can't explain away. No, no matter what you tell me, I'm going to go. Nope. That was dumb. Like capital. I'm going to try. No, 
it, there's nothing try. you okay you can try the first Shoot. is um why would you watch somebody hack your system to see how good they are like i've i work with information security and when people are hacking your system you shut it down you don't sit there and look at them and go let's see how good this guy is i think i know he is but let, let, let's have him go ahead and hack the system what are you well they were trying to they were no. trying to trap him and no. release the bad footage so that he would he was, be like ah. they didn't know what he was going for they're just like hey somebody's hacking our system and you guys like well let's if, if i go to work and i'm working with our you know security somebody's hacking into our accounts well let's see how good this guy is let, let him through no that that doesn't well, didn't uncle dumb. ben just kind of say like at some point in time like i just let him do it now like just let him they go. They didn't you know? know who it was. They had an assumption, but okay, that that's that's my professional life coming in and going, no. And, <laughs> and apparently Natalie Wood, who is a product like a computer aided designer, she knows how to hack. Yeah, yeah. she can and she knows how to get on. yeah. Yeah. So what did you all what did you all think was happening at the end when they were actually hacking? Like what what do you guys think that they were doing? As far as like what Natalie Wood and Christopher Walken were doing, yeah, what what they were doing, because there's like I, I've heard a lot of criticism about like they were like, and then they just they blow up the factory and then they download the clip and then it ends. But to me, I feel like they were destroying everything. Right? They already said they couldn't decipher his notes, and he was like, uh, "Red Dragon's like, ah, we'll backtrack it or we'll re- reverse engineer it or whatever." But I think they were destroying everything so that they couldn't use it. Yeah, they didn't um, sell it to the military. Yeah. Yeah. They it, want to yeah, okay. have it. It's it's a good example of within a movie, your plot is like, well, we're gonna do something and it's going to destroy this. And me as a viewer with the James Horner music and everything going on, I'm not questioning that aspect of it. Um I'm I'm just in for the ride at that point. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of exciting. They're they're pushing they some. They literally have like a wireless email set, I mean a yeah. wireless internet set up it, it's so like you hey you're down on the thing and you can weird right yeah, yeah. You, you can do the old modem style and totally shut down the government i'm like okay i don't know how that works but but it's an example of from a screenplay perspective i'm watching this and going well that was dumb letting him into the system but then on the back end i should be criticizing that too james horner music kicks in and i'm like oh don't care this is exciting so it's an example <laughs> of you get swept up in it and you just throw logic out the door. But here's the, and this is me, uh, dad talking. I don't know how you feel about this, Brad, but why would you go away for the weekend or on some little holiday excursion after your kid just had a psychotic breakdown or episode and the doctor's like, well, we need to keep him in the hospital for a couple of days. Oh yeah, it was no all problem. Set up. We're, we're going to go. All set up. You're going to leave your kid after having a psychotic episode and go. The doctor said he was going to be fine, but that was all set up. No, nope, no. I know. I wouldn't terrible, do it, but he's a terrible dad. Parent. He's, a, he's a dad. Ter- dad. They're terrible parents. He is a bad dad. He's like, nobody locks me out. And then he like, he's just leaves the hospital. Yeah, that well, was, think, a, that was that an all, odd thread. Wasn't that all just sort of to kind of show that he and her were starting to argue so that the people – that worked at the facility could see like, Oh, they're cracking. If we go and we need to follow, see what happens. And then they kind of separate to feel like, Oh, your kid is in a hospital. You won't leave your kid unless you're a terrible parent. So no, he's a terrible, terrible parent. Um, Well, I mean, more, more to, more to Brad's point. Yeah. That it's, it seems odd. And then Christopher Walken does this whole thing. Ah, 
you go to hell. Oh, you, we all go to hell or whatever. Yeah. And then we realize it is, it's, it's a setup to throw them off Roots, the track or yeah. whatever, but it is super weird. It's right? a stupid way. It's a, it's poor script writing to kind of go, you've got this dramatic moment with your son, you're reconnecting as a family and then your movie shifts and go, well, we're going to leave him in the hospital and we're going to go start this like coup against the company. Again, it's my problem with the screenplay that you go, I'm with you on the story and I'm with you on some of these emotional beats. But when they interject this kind of garbage from a storytelling perspective and go, dude, that's not that doesn't make common sense. Actually, it makes if I if I was really excited about them getting back together as a couple, as soon as that happened, I'm like, you guys should get divorced and then the kids should go live in a foster home. Because you're terrible. Yeah, CBS. Yeah. I'll CBS. <laughs> like, but it's an example of where this movie kind of rubs me the wrong way, where it's like, yeah, I'm along for the ride. And then, oh, God, that's just, that's bad storytelling right there. Um, like, well, it's you, classic, you like, hey, we, are, we have this huge I idea know. in this. I know. You have, you have this huge idea and you've got all this like scientific stuff, but you kind of miss all the little minor details down at the bottom that. You, you kind of have to hurry past because you're you're trying to make this overarching huge idea work, and if you get nailed down into like the details, yeah. then you're you're not focusing on the big picture. So, well, I, mean, I get. I mean, that happens a lot. The bigger stuff has to kind of have you so involved, or you know, kind of sweep you up in it that you don't pay attention to those little details. And again, that's where I think this movie suffers a little bit. Is there are moments where I should be all in and just forget the little details, but sometimes the script kind of goes wonky and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm out of it for a minute. And then, and then yeah, James the seams are showing. <laughs> yeah. The, then the James Horner music kicks in. I'm like, Oh, I'm back in. So, um, I, I guess we've mentioned it a couple of times. Let's, let's talk about the ending. Um, Ooh, yeah, actually just to, uh, just one note, the, the black security guard who unfortunately gets like pummeled by all the machinery, his name is Ernest Robinson. He's uh, basically known as uh, he's a he's a great stuntman, doubled Richard Pryor and Philip Michael Thomas in Miami Vice and some other movies. But he also founded the Black Stuntman's Association, and he was a stunt coordinator for Smoking the Bandit and Hooper. Ooh. Hooper is one of my favorite. That movies. movie's amazing. Wow. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's Ernest Robinson. He's pretty awesome. This oh. is early '80s. Like, is he the only black guy in this movie? <laughs> it's pretty no, there was, no remember there was that other scientist there was another scientist guy who was handing oh. something to somebody and then walkin's like don't you do that and he's like ah. oh, <laughs> yep, okay yep. yeah there were, there were two forgot, yeah i've got the old sorry yeah yeah okay all so, right let's talk about the ending let's talk about the ending. yeah ending so you, you said you had a you had a theory jose um okay so my theory is that because trumbull says that those aren't angels okay yeah. so you know at the end when percent angels <laughs> I know, right? I don't it's, care what you wing, say they're angels. The wings are flapping. They've got to be angels, right? But Trumbull's like, they're not angels. So it got me thinking, right? So they tapped into the higher brain functions for the brainstorm. It it amplifies and like 100% like your feelings and your thoughts. So one of her little memory bubbles, she says, um, hold on, let me find this quote here. She says, um, I want to believe that there is something more. I just never could, right? So my theory is that it's not heaven that they're seeing. It's her idealized vision of what's going to happen after she dies, right? Okay. Because she says she never wanted, she, she never could, she wants to believe that there's something more. And I'm thinking more beyond this life, 
right? But I never could. And, you know, not only does your life flash before you when you're dying, so all the little memory bubbles, right? But I think that was her intense desire that there be something benevolent and wonderful to go to and not something horrible. But why does she see hell? I have no idea. But, you know, I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, you grew up Catholic, right? So though, and I grew up Catholic too. I guess I'm a reformed Catholic, but like, I was scared to go to hell. I was scared, you know, whatever. So maybe she had a small glimpse of that. Right. And then was like, that's not where I'm headed. Cause I know me, I know what I did. And then she has this idealized version of what the afterlife looks like. Okay. I like it. I, that's an interesting theory. <laughs> I, I do like the fact that with all these memory bubbles and there was a thought, I didn't even think about it until we were talking about it a little bit earlier, but why they show certain memory bubbles and why some of, a lot of those are Christopher Walken. The thing you have to remember is Christopher Walken is the one who's now viewing it. So is the thought now that here are all these memory bubbles and Christopher Walken is looking at the ones that he is associated with or the mem or her memories that he knows of. It's not necessarily that she was thinking those things because she was thinking about everything because you see all the memory bubbles going through. So like you said, her life is passing, you know, in front of her eyes. So when you put on the headset and you're experiencing her death, more or less, you're going to see the things that you are a part of, not all the things that she's seeing. So I don't know. I think maybe I disagree with that because it's her recording. It is. Right? I, I mean, I, yeah. Yes. It could go both ways. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's it, maybe again, it's very, um, artistic it's open for interpretation. It's open for interpretation. Yeah. It's, it's not drawing a very distinct like line to kind of go, well, this is what this means. And this is what that means because to the point you go, I mean, the sequence is broken down. It's kind of simplistic. Um, lights, memory, bu bubble, hell, angels. That's what it is. So, right. Yeah. What would you think of it, Brad? I, I thought it was a little corny. I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, it's because it, of course it would go there. Of course she's going to die and he's going to be able to experience death. And I guess literally your spirit leaving her body, because like there's a moment where she's looking down at her body. Um, and it like, literally travels through space and you're like, okay, I, I, I get what we're doing here. Like it's cool. And I love it visually, but like, I don't know. I, I would have liked to see it like kind of turn, like, I don't know. I just thought it was super corny, but I liked it visually and with the music and stuff, but those are definitely angels. Like it's definitely <laughs> angels. Like I can't, you can't like make angels and then say, nah, you're reading it wrong. They're not angels. Like, no, they're, they're literally people with wings on their back. Yeah. I, I'm with in a you. heavenly like place. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I had the same experience that, uh, and, and even it, it took me back to the theater going, Oh, I remember the sequence and it was super impressive to see in 70 millimeter with the music and everything else. But as I'm watching it, I'm going, it, it doesn't make sense to me why I, why she would see these visions of hell and then go to heaven with all the angels outside of, you know, God saying, Hey, look what you missed. Now we're going to hear, and I don't know if, if God's like that. Like when you die, he, he either takes you to heaven and go, well, look what you missed. Now we're going to hell or you go to hell and go, well, look what you missed and you go to heaven. I don't know how it works, but I'm kind of with you, Brad. When I look at that sequence, I don't find it corny in my head. I go, 
oh, show scan, 70 millimeter, IMAX reel. I'm, I'm looking at the visuals and the music and it's really cool, but it doesn't resonate with me emotionally. I mean, you're like 2001 did it better. <laughs> yeah. Well, 2000, you know, that's a, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting concept because with 2001, I mean, people can love or hate that film. I've, I will watch that thing over and over again because that ending kind of man's transformation into the star baby and everything else it's done so well. And I have so many questions every time I watch it, but I feel something as I'm watching that. I don't feel anything during this brainstorm version of it, I guess. Boob storm. Yes. Boob storm. <laughs> I felt something through that sequence. Yeah. I didn't feel anything. No, through no you're right. Story. Like I, I, again, like my emotions, cause I, I knew that was kind of the logical conclusion to where they were going. Obviously when she dies and she puts the thing on, you're like, Oh, he's going to be able to like experience death without dying. Um, you know, I also find it kind of weird that like you can get to a point where like the brain scan sort of brainstorm, sorry, brain scan is a whole different movie. Um, <laughs> uh, Edward Wait, Furlong, another yeah. Edford, Edward Furlong reference. Oh my yeah, God. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody take a drink. <laughs> um, but like he was trying to watch it one time and it like it, he, he couldn't handle it, but literally he could do it the next time. Like there's also no logic in why certain people can, can do one of the brainstorm activities at one point in time and then not at another time. Yeah. Um, Cause it literally puts him in the hospital and then, the next time he's totally fine. Well, not totally fine. I mean, he does land on the ground and, but he comes back. So I just, I don't know. It's just, that's a weird logic thing too. It is, but it, to me, it represents the power of an ending like 2001 space odyssey where you see it from a visual perspective. It's immersive. It, it gives you so much to dissect, take in, ask questions about. And with this one, it's like, well, it's visually impressive. And I, I like everything about it from a technical standpoint. It's great eye candy, you know, from a visual effects perspective. Um, I'm, I'm just not feeling anything as I'm watching it. But I will feel something when I watch the 2001 sequence. By the way, my other theory is that when she's like, Michael Anthony Brains, and, she, and he wakes up or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they, they hug and then it goes into that bubble. He died. Oh, he died watching that clip. Oh, really? Um, huh. I mean, that's that boy. That's a downer. that's what I that's what I get from it because when it goes into that memory bubble, right? And 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 even when he wakes up, the Wright brothers are there, and it's sort of this idealized. You can see the tower, and she's there, and there's two cars, and and then the bubble snaps, in. I'm like, oh, he died. What I, man? You what a Jose, you bummed me out, man. I thought it was a happy ending. She went to heaven. They reconnected. They're going to go pick up their asshole kid out named. of the coma. That's not a happy ending. You get full named. That's it's not good. Ooh. So the only the only reason why Troy, what? What? Gotten full named? Well, only when I'm in trouble. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you only get you only get full named when you're. But in trouble. I didn't die when I got full named. Well. <laughs> so the only reason why I think that is because, like Brad was saying, um, you know they they. I don't know how you do this. Apparently you just unconnect one thing, but they, they, they turn the brain, um, 
the brainstorm, they turned off the emotional like resonance right. so that they could just simply see it. But he goes into a coma anyway because the her her death tape is so strong that he ends up in the hospital. And so that's why I took when he finally does watch it and he's smiling before he falls down, he says, I'm finished. She never says that. Right. She might have she might have felt that as she was having like the heart attack. But he says, I'm finished. And then he falls over. Huh. So I think he died. Wow. Maybe the maybe Tyler Durden spliced in the boob uh, thing again, and he, uh, he <laughs> or the penis finished. thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I, I have a couple of questions because the thing I like about this film is the entire concept of it. I, I think it's super cool, and we talked about technology. But to kind of bef- before we get to the question, right? Okay. Um, would you record your thoughts and emotions for somebody else to view? So if this technology existed, and you had the ability, and we said, okay, Jose you're, we're going to record everything and it, and full functionality. So it's, it's not just the visual stuff, but the memory stuff like that. Would, would you record it and have somebody view it? Hells yeah. Really? So yeah, I would, I would totally do it. Listen, listen, think about it. So why is social media so prevalent and popular? It's because we are sort of selling or the experience of being ourselves, right? Instagram, hey, check it out. You're in my life. Facebook, here are my deepest thoughts as a post, right? right. So I know I know some people would be like, I wouldn't do it, but I think there's a million other people out there that would, given the trend that we're going with social media and wanting to share ourselves virtually and the experience of being us, um, I think they would totally record their emotions and feelings and be like, Hey, watch this and have people like flip out over it. But, but you yeah. would, you would do that. You would put yourself, I would totally do it. Okay. I would you, totally Brian? do it. I'd also make a porn loop. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, no way. I, uh, uh-uh. not in, are you on Facebook? Not really. No, I, to me, it's like, it's, my thoughts and my memories and all that stuff is the most intimate thing that I have to myself. So I wouldn't, you know, maybe it would be nice. Like if I did it, like if I knew I was going to die and I wanted my kids to be able to experience this. I mean, we're literally doing this as almost a keepsake for our kids to be able to listen and watch movies with us when we're no longer here. Right. Um, you know, so in a way we're doing it um, cause they're going to feel emotion and, maybe the emotions that we had, but I wouldn't like record my thoughts like that. No, no, I'm with you. So I would do the technology (laughs) up to the point where, um, it wasn't recording memories, thoughts, emotions, all the other stuff from an experience standpoint, sight, cell, smell, sound, all of that. Yeah. I'm all for it. Um, so boob storm you're in for, I'm in for, yeah, (laughs) but to tap into my head and go, well, this, this is a memory. This is what you're thinking, et cetera. I'm, I'm afraid somebody would look at that and go, that is uh Ren and Stimpy mixed with some, you know, Jackson Pollock and it doesn't make any sense. And I, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I like the whole virtual experience, but not the whole, here's, here's your emotional experience kind of thing. Second question. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. no I was just going to, I was just going to say, let's, let's bring it all back to James Cameron again. I think the spiritual sequel to this is strange days. Yes. Have you all seen that? Oh yeah. And With, that's directed by Catherine example. Bigelow. And so the, the, you know, the squid net, it's, it's sort of the same thing. Right? It is. Yeah. No, it's pretty awesome. Okay. Here's the I other. I was even thinking like flatliners is also kind of adjacent to this movie as well. 
It, yeah. Yeah, it's dipping its Just toes without in the, the same Phantom territory. Storm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, so here's the other thing. I have a question for both of you. Would would you watch the Lillian Reynolds tape? So Yeah. You, I would. you would, Jose? You'd, I would. You'd want to see what happens after death and her death and everything else. I mean, just like just like Christopher Walken says, like they're sitting outside of that cabin and he's like, it was such a lie. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I would want to see it. I mean, I would also want to guarantee I wouldn't die watching it, but I would want to watch it. <laughs> OK, so you'd want to know. Yeah. OK, what about you? I'd want to know. Nope. Nope. I, I think there's some things like people always say, like, if someone can prove to you that God was real, would you want to see him? And I would always say no. Why? I, I just wouldn't want to know. But why? Because wow. the whole I respect that the whole basis of faith is that you believe in something without proof, mm-hmm. and once you have proof, your faith is no longer there. Okay. So I, I, mean, is, I it just, beca- is it because maybe like if God showed up dressed like a lame corset? <laughs> Bob had gold weight or something? Would you then be like, oh my god, like life is not worth it because? God is no, Bobcat no, Goldthwait. No, I mean, I, I might believe that, but uh, no, it's just the fact that if if God was materialized as anything, I mean, even if it was, I don't know, fucking giraffe or whatever, like, <laughs> right? The fact that it's real and in you're taking away a that factor of oh, now you know it's real, so choosing to believe it is no longer really a choice because um, it's real. Um, I also wouldn't like Jose, I like, would you want to know if someone said, I could tell you the exact moment you're going to die. Would you want to know? Probably. Yeah. See, oh, I, would, yeah. I wouldn't. I'm a really curious person. Yeah. See, I probably want to know. <laughs> I'm really not like that sort like, I'm okay not knowing things, I guess. And I guess that might be why I'm kind of dumb, but you know, like <laughs> I, I'm okay. Man, I'm okay. Like not knowing things all the time. And, and I, I guess, I mean, I am curious, but I, I, I'm just okay without knowing stuff. Okay. I, here's my thought. Cause I was thinking about this, uh, Cameron and, and I watched this film. Cameron loved it. He, he really got into this movie. Yeah. Cameron, is he still on pain medication or no, no, not? no. Cause this would be a oh, great movie. Yeah, to be on no, he wasn't on pain medication for this one. Um, and no, I think you'd freak out though. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this, and and I would have the view like uh, I'm kind of like you, Brad. I would not watch that tape because if there is an afterlife and there's heaven and everything else, at that point I'd be like, well, I, I kind of want to get to that destination. Then, um, if there is no afterlife and there's nothing there, then that would affect my ability to enjoy now and everything else. So. I almost look at it like having that knowledge. It, maybe it's a faith question, whatever it is. I feel like having that information means I can't enjoy now. I can't enjoy this conversation that the three of us are having because in the back of my head, I, I would know that information and either want to stay away from it or go towards it. And maybe it's the Buddhist in me that is basically saying you you want to be in the moment. You know, Forget the past, forget the future, enjoy what's going on right now. And to me, I, I guess that concept, um, it's cool from a movie perspective, but if somebody were like, Hey, you can play this tape, this woman died, you can see what happens afterwards. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to know because I would lose focus on what's going on right now. 
Well, but so I I have been picking up um, uh, Buddhism and reading Thich Nhat Hanh and um, some other stuff through the years. It's actually a hobby of mine. And, you know, being in the moment doesn't necessarily mean that you don't plan, that you don't look for an end point, that kind of thing. But I think more to your point, Troy, you know, you would like to think that if people knew that there was a heaven and there was a hell and what it looked like, right, that that would change the behavior, that we would have a better world. But as with anything, that is a choice, yep. right? You can choose to be the military and porn and screw up good ideas, or you can choose to be, you know, um, good people that live, you know, live in the moment and, and have good intentions. Um, so I think, I think you are correct that there, the knowledge can be misused. Yeah. And, right? and, and I so think there can I be people be who are like, it doesn't it. matter what I do. So I'll just yeah. go and kill people. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, more to Brad's point as well, like, yeah, if, if, if God was a tangible entity that we could see and sort of look at, well then Jesus, God, what does that mean about the devil? What does that mean about like, yeah. <laughs> tragedies over here and then beneficial things here, like what's going to happen next. And, you know, it just, this is a whole nother subject. It it is, but it's, it's interesting. Like I said, that's that's what good science fiction should do. It should, you know, sort of propose the idea to you and you go, well, what would you do? What would you do with the information? How would this work? So from that perspective, I, I do think conceptually it brings up, you know, a good discussion point to say, if you have this technology, you can experience it. Can you experience it all the way through? And then would you take that ride? Um, and all three of us have different answers or different reasons of why we would or wouldn't do it. So, um, you know, it's, I also find it really morbid. I don't know if yes. I find it. I don't know if I find it morbid. The woman is, I don't know. I, I do. Okay. <laughs> I just leave it at that. Well, it is. The Buddhists, however, do say you should meditate on death, right? At the moment moment of death, it shouldn't be, ah, it's going to happen or whatever. It should be a peaceful transition. So Buddhism sort of teaches that you get square with the fact that everything is impermanent. Yeah. Right? But I I think that's different than like chasing after the knowledge. It's more of an acceptance of the reality. So yeah, but you're right. That's a whole nother podcast. So we we can, we can talk about radical acceptance and all those things. So um, anything else you guys want to talk about with, uh, with this um, eighties sci-fi? Well, we'll find out if it's a classic or not, but anything else? No. All right, let's get to the question. So we're going to start with you. Okay. Jose. Yeah, we covered Jesus as well. We yeah, covered we, Jesus too. We did right? the whole thing. We got deep. So 1983's Brainstorm starring Christopher Walken, Natalie Wood. Jose, thank you so much. For, I mean, you dropped some knowledge. As always, you always come on the show and you're dropping knowledge oh. left and right. But um, Brainstorm oh, 1983, you. is it a bomb? It is not a bomb. It is something that should be revisited and rewatched. And God, I hope they reboot it or remake it or something. I think it's absolutely, the idea of it is rife for a remake or something to bring it to a bigger level. IMAX, 3D, however you want to do it. Trumbull, we're waiting. Okay. <laughs> Brad, 19, this is your pick. Actually, yeah. thank you, Phil, for the recommendation. It, it really gave us an awesome conversation. But Brad, is Brainstorm a bomb? Uh, Brainstorm is not a bomb. I, I do like the science fiction of it. Uh, like you've kind of said, some of the details get a little bit muddy. Um, and the relationship between our two leads is a little bit imperfect, but at the end of the day, I really liked 
you know, the science and, and kind of putting this kind of piece together. And yeah, I think it's imperfect, but I will definitely go back and rewatch it and try to experience it on a different level. Um, and it, like this movie, like made me think about a lot of things like, like, yeah, like whether or not I would put on a helmet to experience someone else's death. And that's kind of powerful. Um, and I don't think it's fair. Like we brought up 2001's ending to this one. It's like, come on, 2001's ending is like one of the best endings of all time. So that's not a real <laughs> fair thing to do. So, okay. Uh, it's not a bomb. And, uh, I think people should seek this out. Um, I had a pretty easy time finding it. Um, so if you're curious, definitely watch it. Okay. Uh, I'll be totally honest. I walking into it after, you know, talking about it and dissecting and putting my notes, I, my, my initial reaction was this from a theatrical experience. Like if you saw this thing in a theater in a big screen, if Jose, we went down to the AFI and they're like brainstorm, I'd be like, I'm there 70 millimeter, 35, that whole experience. It's not a bomb because the bigger the screen, the bigger, the immersive experience. Um, I think the better, uh, the movie, um, comes across because it's designed that way. It's designed as, um, you know, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but it's designed as a way to take the viewer and kind of say, we're going to put you in a traditional viewing experience and then kind of blow that up for you. And you're going to go back and forth and you get a sense of virtual reality. I think it's very hard to do regardless of what the best home system is that you have. And you definitely can't watch this thing on an iPad or iPhone or anything of that nature. <laughs> I stopped. So my initial reaction is it's a bomb on home video but it wouldn't necessarily be a bomb in theatrical experience, but I'll, I'll say overall it's marginally not a bomb universally. And it's because of the concept it's because of the science fiction. So it has storytelling problems. Um, I think it has some chemistry problems in aspects and that kid's still an asshole. Um, oh, <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, it's more of a, Hey, this would be a great movie going experience. It's a pretty good home video experience, but more than anything, it's a great conceptual experience to kind of sit down and have the conversation we have. So I would say it's, it's definitely not a bomb. If you're seeing in the theater, it's marginally not a bomb from a home <laughs> movie experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's also shot really well, and this music is amazing. And, oh yeah, that soundtrack's fantastic. Yeah, so like there there are some aspects that we really didn't get to discuss as much, but it, it looks great. The cinematography is great, set design is great, music is amazing. So yeah, all those other things are spot on. Yeah, I agree. I know you, I know you guys talk about like uh, marketing materials too. Have you seen the poster for this? I, oh yeah, we forgot to talk about that. I love yeah. the original yeah. theatrical poster. So it's wonderful, but there is a lot of text. And so I think yeah. I think that when you see a poster like that and there's a lot of text, I think that just it signals like you're going to be in for something that's going to make you think that you're going to have to like sort of put your brain to and not just, you know, watch. But uh, I was interested to see how much text was actually on that that poster. It's a paragraph. It gives you an entire yeah. paragraph over, hey, you know, this is the setup. Would you do this? And we invented this technology. So it's giving you the premise on the poster. But I love the idea of here's the headset with all these colors kind of bleeding down uh, to the yeah. bottom. It's it Beautiful. visually it's it's amazing. The trailer's okay. 
It, it doesn't, um, it's a very talky trailer. It is very talky. It's very, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's doing. But given the content, uh, and the premise of the story, it, it, the trailer is reminiscent of the poster in that we got to tell you everything that's going on. Cause you're not going to pick it up visually, you know, just within a minute or two. I, I, I feel bad for people who tried to, who had to try to market this film. Like this film is oh, yeah. a difficult task. Like, I don't know how I, I, I can honestly see why this film bombed. Like I can see it easily. Yeah, like, absolutely. It, it's, it's not shocking. It, it still shocks me that 1983 they're, they're tackling like virtual reality and then how technology starts larger. You consumerize it into this, you know, wearable tech. I mean, Wow. It's amazing. Well, I mean, look at like early '90s. We had Lawnmower Man, and that one like didn't even come close to what they're doing what this in was. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, do we want to talk about next week, Brad? Before we get into our general, uh, here's all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right? Okay. So listen, we I had, generally forgot what we're doing next week, so this will be well. Listen, to me. I mean, last week we had De Palma. We're talking about a classic thriller. There's some political subtext to it. I mean, this week we're doing heavy science fiction. We're talking about life and death. Um, we got to get a bit more, um, I don't know, just fun. <laughs> I mean, lighten up, lighten, lighten up. up just a little bit. So <laughs> I thought, uh, Brad, we haven't watched a movie where there's a lot of people kicking each other in the face for a while. And I'm jonesing for some good face kicking uh, on the screen. So I thought, let's go back. And let's watch a film that I don't think a lot of people know about, but there was a great, I mean, a fantastic release of this film from this year. And for the longest time, you can only get it on DVD, but um, I think it's MVD put it out. And this is one of my favorite, uh, you know, let's say American British action films of all time, seriously. But we're going to talk about 1997's Drive with Mark Dacascus. Uh So good. So it, good. It is amazing. I mean... It, it is Jackie Chan quality in my, in my opinion. So I, I thought, listen, we've, we've had some amazing films, um, some classic films and let, let's have fun and let's watch people kick each other in the face and, and talk about how cool it is to watch them kick each other in the face. So if you're playing along, we're going to watch 1997's uh, drive next week. One of the things I love about doing this show, Troy, is it's completely you and I and our guests, but we usually decide what we're going to do minus some recommendations. And like, if we really wanted like as much sort of cast the widest net as we wanted to, we would always do star Wars and big trouble, little China, those big movies, Yeah, you know, and, and we've done some of those, but then we do things like drive and it's like, you know, obviously we're doing this for like a niche person. And it's one of the things I like the most because it's like, we're not afraid and we don't really care uh, about casting this wide net. We just want to do films that we think are cool and we want to revisit or examine why it didn't work. So yeah. And, and this is one of the ones that, um, and Jose, I, I know you've seen this film, but this is one of the films that when people talk about action films and they talk about action choreography and you talk about, um, just sort of the, the buddy cop or the, you know, the buddy protagonist scenario, Nobody right. talks about this film and I just don't think it's been seen by enough folks and it is so rewatchable. And I remember discovering it on like a pan and scan <laughs> version. And then finally you'd have VHS. to go to the, yeah, you'd have to go to UK and get the director's cut. And the fact that this thing exists on Blu-ray 
Um, and Mark Dacascus is one of my favorite. I think a lot of people know him from Brotherhood of the Wolf, which there's another amazing release coming out from Shout coming Factory. Out soon. Yep. But this is the one, like of all of his films, it is my favorite. But it's it's a movie that just doesn't get talked about enough. So I, I don't know he's what you think. Filipino, about it. Right? Uh, I think he's Filipino, right? I think he's yeah, Filipino. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just. Did he do, was it called Only the Strong? Only the Strong was kind of where he came onto the scene in sort of a limited theatrical release, but it was it was a kind of a big hit um, from Action Junkies on a on the you know VHS DVD market. Yeah, it was like Capoeira. This is Hawaiian. Oh, is he Hawaiian? Okay, I think yeah, so. I know he. I think he still lives in Hawaii because he he posts. I follow him on you know all the social media. So if you go and watch Mark Dacascus on social media, he posts all these workout routines and he's climbing okay. these mountains and everything else. And most people will know him from uh, the latest John Wick film because he plays the villain in that. But I'm telling you, if if you only know him from uh, John Wick, you need to go see Drive because you're in for a treat. He's Iron Chef. <laughs> yeah, Iron Chef. I thought that he would. I thought he would become the next Jackie Chan, and I was. I'm always happy to see him show up and stuff because I know he can rumble and and he's actually not a bad actor. So yeah, I, I think he's super charismatic. So I'm I'm already showing my hand about what I think about <laughs> next week. But yeah, you're right, Brad. I, I love this because we can talk about you know De Palma. We can talk about you know Man from Uncle, something more mainstream. And uh, why don't you just die a Russian film? And then we come back to, to drive. So that's pretty cool. And you guys turned me on to live wire with uh, <laughs> a crazy movie with here's um, Rosin. That was, uh, yeah, that's why I love your podcast. Like um, it'll be, there'll be movies that I haven't revisited or seen by your recommendations and just your talk. Yeah, I went. I went right to Livewire. I was like, "Never seen that. This sounds amazing. Let's do it." <laughs> I figured that'd be right up your alley. But um, Brad, if anybody else wants to drop us a recommendation, because this um, film that we talked about this week came from our our uh, listener Philip, and thank you so much for making us kind of put this uh, to the forefront. But yeah, absolutely, <clears throat> Brad. How do people get a hold of us and send us recommendations and tell us what they think about Brainstorm? Yeah, that's uh, not a bomb pod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we do get a lot of recommendations through Facebook messenger and stuff. And Troy does a really good job of, you know, answering those. So, um, yeah, all those are easy ways to get a hold of us. Give us your recommendations. Also, Troy. Yes. Want to remind everyone that we are doing a project with Sammy from gentleman's guide to midnight cinema, where we're watching all of cowboy bebop. We are starting to record those at the end of the month. So look for those in your feed coming up in August. Yes, that'll be are a we lot excited of about the, are we excited about the live action movie? Don't know. Never seen the series before. So ask me, in a, uh, ask me in a few uh, minutes. Cowboy Troy, bebop is the bomb. Choice. <laughs> Troy has uh, yet to see it. So I'm taking them on oh. a journey. Yeah, this will be. You fun. are in for a treat, my friend. I, I'm excited. I mean, what, what everybody tells me, I'm, I think I'll like it, but you know, we'll see. And, uh, it's your wheelhouse. Yeah. And listen, folks, if you can share the podcast with your friends, neighbors, strangers, I don't know. Um, that would be awesome. Leave us <laughs> yeah, a, just some guy, you know, some just guy so walk you up, see. Go, hey, watch anybody, anybody, <laughs> make Le- sure you, you yell bomb really loud at people. You don't know. No, don't please. do that. Don't do that. That'll uh, be good. And leave so, us a review from on a iTunes. legal standpoint. That would be great. <laughs> Jose. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm yeah. kidding. I'm kidding. I'm Don't do it. Uh, but listen, <laughs> what about my first amendment? <laughs> it's derailing. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, leave us a review on iTunes or any place that happens to allow you to leave a review. That's always nice to see uh, that feedback. But um, Jose, 
Mm. I can't wait to have you back again. But listen, I I was so excited to have you come on this film and specifically talk about, you know, the folks that made it, all the stuff uh, that happened from a production standpoint. Because once again, you have shown to everybody that no matter what kind of research we could do and come prepared, you are going to put us to shame with just everything that sits in your noggin. Um, and it is amazing. Like I am sitting here just in awe of just your film knowledge in general. Plus now you would think that is just as cool, but your personality and your ability to just make us laugh and kind of contextualize <laughs> these things. Um, you're one of the best uh, people I know and you're one of the best hosts and we, we just love having you on. So I can't say that enough. Oh, thank you. I, I know there's, Definitely smarter people out there, but, but thank you. I'm not, not smarter than you. I don't believe it. I'm just happy you love the word vomit. So I'm happy to come on here and word vomit. All, it's awesome. All day long. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, folks, I don't know if you are listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening. We are super appreciative that you just came to uh, listen to us talk for a few hours about this awesome movie and listen to our good friend, Jose. I hope you're having an awesome day and we'll talk to you next week when we discuss 1997's Drive. Don't lose your head.